our harm reduction training collaborative. Today, we're going to cover practical strategies. Uh, so that's going to uh, touch on harm reduction and collaborative care, how these how harm reduction can fit into collaborative care, practical strategies for substance use, uh, overdose prevention, medication, assisted treatment, some COVID-19 considerations. So we're, we're moving out of that. Um, the content will still be in the deck. We can touch on it briefly uh, throughout uh, the training today. The drug set setting framework and some vignette exercises at the end of today, and then some resources. Um, and so in days one and two, we covered uh, a lot of history and policy uh, around the war on drugs uh, to contextualize how you know stereotypes and stigma and, and beliefs um, may have been developed uh, around substances and substance use and harm reduction. Um, we talked through some models of addiction. Uh, including harm reduction's perspective and uh, the disease model and uh, for the rec, the moral model of addiction. On day two, we talked through some understandings of stages of change, um, how people set goals and uh, deal with ambivalence and experience ambivalence um, and motivation around change related to higher risk behaviors. We talked through motivational interviewing, just barely touched on that. Um, Let's see what else did we do. Talked about talking with folks about substance use and how to do this in a way that is autonomy supportive. Uh, we hope to sort of, you know, consider those those conversational styles, those uh, those ways of making sense of risk um, and supporting clients' dignity of risk and autonomy, staying in the middle of that over overprotect neglect continuum. Uh, that's sort of the platform to then integrate in these practical strategies. Um, and the practical strategies we'll talk about today, some are, you know, life-saving interventions like naloxone. Uh, others are ways that you can also support your engagement. I think I mentioned this on day two, but when we can provide something tangible and helpful or say, hey, I understand, you know, this is your, your realistic experience of using substances, um, here's, here's some ideas on how you could do so more safely. We are able to engage them in a conversation that's really relevant and resonant. Um, we're pro providing some immediate help and that's a great way to show that we are not judging and we want to maintain engagement with someone we're working with and also around these commonly stigmatized behaviors and topics. All right, so the drug set setting framework is going to be um, a cornerstone of today's content, and I wonder if anyone has uh, has familiarity with this. We touched on the multidisciplinary assessment profile um, that is an extension or based off of the drug set setting framework. That was a way to do a really thorough assessment around all the factors that might impact someone's engagement in substance use and services you would provide for them, uh, looking at very comprehensively based off of this three-part framework. Um, but if anyone has comments on that, if they've used the drug set setting uh, tool or framework before, please feel free to chime in. We'll use this today to go through a few vignettes and determine targets where you can support folks in reducing harms around a behavior and sort of the I kind of like to think of it as a bit of like a, I don't know, it's a, it's a, a creative thinking challenge. Uh, <laughs> how can we reduce harms around uh, substance use or risky behavior without directing the change to the behavior frequency itself? So without telling someone to stop and without telling them to reduce. 
maybe in some situations, uh, harm reduction does occur through someone learning to reduce their use, um, via, via frequency or via amounts of substances. But we're going to try to use this tool today a little later um, in a more uh, challenging way where that's that's off the table. We, we can't target either of those. So we're going to think really creatively around how can we target aspects um, not related to frequency and amounts, um, but focus more on all these other areas where we can uh, aim to reduce harm. So just to remind folks, the drug set setting uh, concepts, drug refers to the type of drug, um, the dose of it, so the amount, the source where, where it's uh, obtained and its potency, um, that's very simply put. Uh, set refers to a more complex uh, thing. It's, it's really about someone's uh, mindset when they're engaging in use their motivation or relationship to the use, you know, why they're doing it, um, how they feel about it, what it's offering them, uh, its physiological impacts and their physiology in general, what they what they physiologically health-wise bring to, to the use um, and beliefs, what they think about it, uh, what society's taught them about it, how much they've internalized stigma, um, all of these things, you know, feelings, this is all impactful to how someone experiences uh, substance use positively or negatively. And setting refers to the greater context in which someone is engaging in use. And so that's the environment, uh, supports that someone might have, uh, culture, social dynamics, safety considerations. Um, and I think that was pretty straightforward. Set is perhaps the more complex of the three. And here in the middle, we have benefits and harms. And that's just really to remind us where we always want to look at the pros and cons, benefits and harms um, in equal measure with substance use. So when we're like analyzing or trying to uh, problem solve or creatively think around harm reduction strategies for someone that is not related, again, to getting them to quit or getting them to reduce, um, one of the ways we can best, uh, best target some areas for harm reduction will be through thinking through benefits and harms. Where can we uh, highlight and reinforce the benefits and where can we reduce the harms? Okay, this will probably make a bit more practical sense when we go through some vignettes later, but just want to set the stage with the drug set setting tool today. So harm reduction and collaborative care. Why do you all think we want to talk about this? What do the two have to do with one another? And if you have thoughts, please feel free to put them in the chat. How can collaborative care be a harm reduction strategy? Okay, the concept of harm reduction is through collaborations. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Very straightforward answer there, and it makes plenty of sense. Um, the you know heart and soul philosophy and ethics of harm reduction is to be collaborative with the uh the people we're serving to share that power to partner with them meet them where they're at working together to achieve a goal right extra support to reach goals yeah amazing in essence collaboration is working with the client's harm reduction goal or goals okay wonderful and so i love that you're you all are immediately thinking of collaborating with uh, the people you're providing services to, and that is wonderful. <laughs> and in fact, we're going to talk about collaborating with other people who are providing services to them here at the start. <laughs> but this is great um, that that's 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 immediately where your minds go. So harm reduction can help meet their needs. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so we just talked about that drug set setting tool. Um, 
I want to expand out on uh, the setting aspect of it um, and acknowledge and speak to some complexity around setting. So we we got into this a little bit uh, last week, but you know when we're working with folks and we want to ensure that they have autonomy support, um, they have that dignity of risk. Uh, not everyone it has the same autonomy options. Not everyone has the same set of choices in their lives based off of restricted restrictive contexts. So when we think about setting, and that's that you know. Uh, down here on the right, environment supports cultural social dynamics. You could add in some other aspects to that. Um, we have some folks that are in settings that are restrictive. Um, so some examples are on this slide. Uh, we have uh, considerations for setting uh, or as a, and these are also, you know, these are things people can experience based off of they are engaged in a restrictive or um you know, impacted by a restrictive context, but also when we think about targeting harm reduction um, goals or, or interventions, we can consider how we can, through a collaborative care lens and a harm reduction lens, look at reducing harms related to setting when folks are in restrictive contexts or at risk of being in them. So here at the top, we have risk of criminalization. That one's really obvious and clear cut. Um, some harm reduction interventions that target this uh, risk area would be to support people in trying to not use in public uh, when possible, problem solving private or safer spaces in which to use, uh, know your rights education, justice system involvement like probation parole, we can advocate for ODR, collaboration and rapport development uh, with uh, parole prob probation officers. Maintaining housing is a really uh, important uh, setting aspect. Uh, we can support people through helping them obtain or maintain housing first housing, uh, low threshold housing, uh, and use in ways if they're in housing that does not disturb their neighbors so they can maintain their housing and abide by program rules. Often a bit of a challenge. A financial impact is another consideration for setting or a target for risk reduction. Uh, this could include budgeting, reducing reliance on loan sharks if people are having financial um, management challenges and having are getting loans in the community that are uh, end up being quite predatory. Relationships, so safety planning for coercive or domestically violent relationships, uh, building a trusted community for support and overdose prevention, very important, and employment. So uh, for folks that are have employment or are uh, at risk of losing employment or struggling to gain it, uh, we can, and their substance use might be a factor impacting that. Um, we can work with folks to think around scheduling their use with time to sober up and to plan for drug testing. So some of these aren't, you know, not obvious restrictive contexts. Um, employment at least isn't the one that I would say sort of fits into that. But the other ones are not having um, money and living in fear of loan sharks threatening you is a restrictive context. Um, at risk of losing your housing or having an eviction and then having that impact your housing history is a potentially restrictive context. This, this is where people, we think again, a restrictive context as where people don't have as much choice essentially. Um, and so some, a really good harm reduction uh, practical strategy can be to try to keep people out of these um, however possible. So maintaining safety and access to the environments and context they want to be in and sustaining their capacity to have more choice. All right, so 
Collaboration uh, or collaborative care. Um, when we think of uh, collaborative care is sort of, you know, it's absolutely cl collaborating with the person we're providing services to, but all of their key care partners, all the folks that uh, are in their life and providing supports to them or impacting, you know, their their recovery plan, their their goals. So it could include, you know, social supports, family. Um, but we're we're really thinking in this slide here, we're thinking about their their doctors, their other providers, um, housing providers, anyone that is supporting, you know, their health and well being. So. Collaborative care and collaboration is a great tool for breaking systemic barriers. We know that people end up in situations where they're not receiving the highest qualities of care when they um, are experiencing substance use, or if they, especially if they also have um, a co-occurring mental health disorder, which, you know, if, if you're in this training, that's who, who you are working with <laughs> most likely. Um, or for other reasons, you know, for other uh, impacts of marginalization and oppression, uh, people might not have access to quality care. And with a uh, cornerstone of quality care is the ability for it to be integrated and uh, coordinated. Um, so one of the ways that we can be uh, most effective is in doing care coordination, um, ensuring there's good communication across folks as providers, um, that we are uh, helping people access high threshold, high barrier types of services that they may need. Um, so these are activities of collaborative care that we can do to break down those systemic barriers that are otherwise really challenging. Um, so on the right here, we have disjointed services, marginalization and stigma, care access, employment opportunities. Are there any other aspects of you know, systemic barrier types that come to mind that we can be effective with to help people access more quality care? It's a bit of a complex question, but where else can we you know, potentially reduce the harm from people's engagement in substance use or risky behavior by communicating across their um, across systems or across their key care partners. Communicating with client, okay, yeah. Significant others in the community, yeah. All right, we'll move on from this one. Um, we're gonna keep talking about it for a few more slides. Uh, this last bullet here, shifting efforts beyond your workplace to address systemic impacts. This is referring to if it's your wheelhouse, if you enjoy, you know, sort of more macro-focused work, um, you know, advocacy work or policy, you know, related work, uh, we can always try to improve systems and advocate for more integrated and less siloed systems in our work periodically. Sometimes we don't have that power, but where we do and where we can pay attention to it, where we can encourage, you know, um, you know, standards of good communication with care partners, um, advocate for uh, greater greater collaboration, that's that's a wonderful opportunity to try to break down these systemic barriers. Okay, we've got significant others in church. Yeah, great, thank you. Okay, so we think a lot about um, within coordinated care or collaborative care, um, this is a lot of Cs, chronic condition management. When we work with folks who use substances, um, their health, their physical health, their medical health, their well-being is often impacted by the substance use. And again, when folks have due to substance use and how that can at times 
uh, put them in a restrictive context or make it so they they aren't as able to engage with providers due to stigma and stereotypes um, or due to fear of, um, you know, having something on their medical chart that they don't want or being treated differently, losing access to types of care because uh, someone might not want to provide it, again, related to stigma, implicit bias, or uh, just barriers if they uh, are using a substance that a provider isn't a fan of, doesn't agree with, or there's, you know, sort of not an interest in coordinating around that due to scope or, again, belief systems by, on behalf of providers. Uh, but chronic condition management is really critical, and this can be a great target for harm reduction intervention. Um, on the left, we have some harm reduction skills for chronic conditions. All the stuff we talked about last week applies here. Uh, motivational interviewing, autonomy support, evaluating risks and benefits, exploring preferences and options. Um, now, some examples of chronic conditions that might be coming up uh, would be diabetes, hypertension, chronic pain, COPD, that's uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, disease, excuse me, uh, HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis C. So just some examples. There are many other chronic conditions um, that people can experience and non-chronic conditions. These are just sort of the big ones um, that even if you're not working with someone where their substance use appears to be directly impacting any of these, if, if any of them are going on, we can do a great service to getting in contact um, with uh, primary and specialty care and getting a good understanding of what treatment is occurring um, and communicating back and forth with client's consent doing whatever types of advocacy and support, shared decision-making uh, can be helpful for that client with their medical providers as well. Um, some harm reduction intervention targets, and these apply to these chronic conditions, but also can apply to you know, other health conditions that might be occurring, uh, could be around diet or exercise, um, smoking, uh, so uh, smoking anything, uh, sleep, primary care and specialty referral and bar addressing barriers to care. So then barriers to care might be qualifying for certain types of care, or it might be um, fears. It might be something on where the client is not comfortable receiving a type of care or, or you know, um, does not want to for any reason, but it might be something that's really important. So working through that and providing support around that in a trauma-informed way. Um, so when we're thinking about this, let's say someone has uh, hypertension, they're using substances in a way that's uh, exacerbating their hypertension, we can look to maybe if they aren't interested in changing their substance use, we can look to maybe diet or exercise or smoking or sleep. <laughs> any Actually, any of those uh, can also uh, impact whether their hypertension is going to get better or worse. Um, so maybe we can't... Um, get someone to stop using stimulants and alcohol, but we can look at all these other areas to areas to holistically support their well-being. And that's just one example, but there are many. Uh, medication use also sort of fits in here somewhere, you know, chronic condition management, uh, like medications do a lot for these. Um, some are absolutely necessary for them and or other medical interventions. And then we know that we work with people who have ambivalence or are, you know, in pre-contemplation or contemplation around using some medications and validly um, at times. So we can apply these things on the left, MI, autonomy support, uh, shared decision-making strategies to work with uh, willingness to use medication consistently. So harm reduction to care transitions, another area where we can uh, be effective in reducing harm in uh, individuals' lives 
is around care transitions. Um, and care transitions can mean uh, many different things. It could mean transitions in or out of our care. Um, it could mean referring folks to additional services while we are working with them. It could mean someone coming in and out of hospitalization or incarceration. Anytime there's a change, a new relationship, uh, or an end of a care, a care uh, partner or um, supportive service relationship, uh, there is always a risk for, well, information about the type of care getting lost, um, sort of a lack of coordination on what types of care uh, or interventions are being done. Uh, so while getting just dropped, there could be uh, impacts to someone's feelings of security and support um, because they might be losing a helping relationship that they may have benefited from or you know, had some feelings about, or they may be gaining one and struggling with building a new relationship. Um, we always want to be sensitive to transitions as critical times where uh, things can sort of fall apart and we can do a lot to ensure that does not happen through uh, things like warm handoffs, and being really careful about when we are uh, ourselves looking to either refer someone to a higher level of care or um, maybe move them on from our services. Those are extra critical. So on this slide, we've got some key considerations. Uh, transitions to higher level of care or more restrictive, more restrictive interventions or settings may seem necessary, but are not always the best option or available. Um, and I know this can seem really hard. If you work in FSP, as many of you might, you are like in terms of someone living in the community, you're the like the last step <laughs> before someone might move into a more restrictive context. Um, you, you provide very intensive services to very uh, high need individuals. Um, so when we are considering, if you, if you work in FSP, referring to a higher level of care, that that is going to probably be a, a more restrictive context. Um, so really weighing out, you know, the risks and benefits of that, and being very careful around that that transition if that's occurring. Um, so weighing that risk of reduced autonomy and how that can impact someone's well-being and their recovery uh, with the benefits of more support or more restriction on someone's autonomy. So fewer transitions, obviously, and sustained engagement are better, and that means program to program, uh, person to person, worker to worker. Uh, having consistent relationships is obviously helpful, not always possible. And we're using trauma-informed lens, warm handoff protocol. Uh, we've got some trainings on care transitions and a deeper dive on collaborative care. If you're interested in it at any point, we can pop those in the chat. Um, we wanna discuss choices that may have consequences that disrupt services or benefits that increase autonomy and uh, support recovery. So here on the right, we have some examples of types of care options, um, crisis respite versus ER. I know crisis respites are not exactly ubiquitous in LA County, but they are going. More of them are going to exist in the future, and that's great. These are services for folks who are maybe in psychiatric or psychological crisis, um, where they can go have some usually uh, peer support oriented uh, care, a place to stay, um, a very autonomy supportive context uh, where they can reach some level of stabilization with support without having to go into ERs. And as we all know, ERs are not the best place for people to go when they're experiencing a uh, psychiatric crisis. In fact, they can exacerbate or, um, uh, or re-traumatize individuals. Um, it's absolutely necessary if they're at risk uh, of 
harm to themselves, but in other situations where that's that isn't on the table, we're not talking about a hold. Crisis respites could be a great example. Um, home health services, so providing things in the home versus a skilled nursing facility. Um, that one's pretty obvious. And the greater theme, staying in one's community versus displacement and isolation. Um, we know that we think about that with transitions with housing. Uh, that if we can at all help people maintain what they are familiar with and their social supports, that is a wonderful way to reduce harm. Okay, so make, I see a comment, making sure referrals are still active and current. Yeah, so it's a lot of this is like, you might just think that this is part of your job. And a lot of it seems like, well, I, I do this, like I talk with people's providers. But being really intentional and sort of methodical about it, ensuring that like, well, you do talk with their providers, but maybe a couple others that have come on board that maybe this PCP over here doesn't know about the endocrinologist over here or the street medicine team that is doing wound care. Maybe there's some like thing, some new um, new referral or new type of service that could be better coordinated. Um, so doing this, you know, if you're doing treatment planning, goal setting at whatever frequency you do, Having like a good method of thinking about all of the care partners that are involved in someone's lives, all of their supports and comprehensively trying to, with a client's permission for communicating, um, you know, not, we don't want to share information that our clients don't want us to, if they don't want their primary care provider to know about this other type of service, like we got to respect that, but um, you get the gist. Uh, we want to be intentional about this and not just do it sort of haphazardly. And it, it can be a lot of work. So, you know, I want to also acknowledge that if you are a therapist, this might not feel like it's in your scope. And then we want to really think about teamwork, relying on a multidisciplinary team to make uh, collaborative care work more, more smoothly and more effectively. Awesome. Thanks, Elizabeth. So I'm going to continue talking about this intentionality we bring to our work with other providers um, and just getting uh, familiar and opening our minds to the harm reduction perspective. If that hasn't been something we've had a lot of exposure to, I relate to this as someone who didn't understand harm reduction at all, came from an absence focused kind of perspective on substances. So I know it can take a lot of mental effort to wrap your mind around harm reduction, um, particularly if you have lived experience with abstinence-focused uh, interventions, whether as a, um, a person who used those interventions to deal with substance use in your own life, but also if you've worked in the substance use field for a long time, you may um, be very familiar with, or it might be difficult, take more mental effort to, um, to understand how harm reduction can really be beneficial. So thank you for your willingness to be here and learn about this. Um, and I bring all this up just to say that um, there are times in our work when we want to collaborate with other providers that are working with our clients other resources, um, other agencies, where they might not have a harm reductionist perspective. Um, and what do we do in that scenario? You know, um, it can be tempting to, you know, let people know all the, all the stats about harm reduction and really uh, kind of 
over explain, but we have a, a different approach here, kind of using a lot of the tools and skills we've already covered and working with clients around substance use. We can use those skills in, in context where we're talking with providers as well. So first things first, like with any client, it's crucial to build rapport with providers that you're collaborating with so that they know that you are a trustworthy care partner. We don't necessarily talk about it like this, but it's true, right? When you are able to build rapport with a contact who is also providing support to your client, it goes so much more smoothly than if there is no rapport built. I'm imagining most of us can think of uh, times we've coordinated with folks where there was a better connection and how that went and when there wasn't such a strong connection. Um, so how do we do this? We can initiate contact warmly and respectfully and really frame our clients' goals as supportive and collaborative, like telling, giving the impression the true impression that we're really all coming together, working on clients' goals together. We've, we're working with the client to get those goals developed, and it's really a team effort. Um, it's also really helpful kind of using a strengths-focused approach to acknowledge providers' expertise and knowledge base using our active listening skills that we use with clients as well. Um, you know, we went over some of those yesterday when we were discussing motivational interviewing and the ORS acronym for open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. Um, and in thinking about like talking with other providers, we want to keep that MI spirit going and ask for permission before we're providing information or an alternative perspective. This can help folks feel more um, open-minded to the information we're going to share. Um, and when we're explaining harm reduction interventions, we should use language that's concrete, practical, and person-centered. So we're really focusing back on the client. Um, we're uh, trying to be very aware of the language that we're using so we don't fall into old habits, old labeling, um, things that might uh, contribute to shame or stigmatizing the client. Um, so we want to be very just aware as we're talking about substance use um, of the language. Even when we're talking about providers, we talked about this before in that when we're talking about our client with our clients, we want to watch how we're using language that might be informed by stigma. Um, and so we just wanna continue this when we're talking about our clients with others, whether on our team, on other, uh, in other roles that might be supporting our clients in a different avenue of their um, well-being. Um, <clears throat> it, it could be that when you are trying to come to a harm reduction perspective with another provider, you might be met with what feels like resistance, which is another label term that we're trying to kind of get away from. But I think we're all familiar with what that word might um, mean when it's used. So if we are trying to talk about harm reduction interventions and we feel that there's maybe some resistance, uh, folks are not, um, 
not under, we're not getting on the same page, we can use those MI techniques as well to kind of roll with that resistance, resistance like you would with your client um, by continuing to advocate, but also uh, validating the experiences of the provider. So an example might be, um, it's hard to feel so worried about a client and not see them making progress in the way that makes the most sense to you. I'd love to talk to you more about this harm reduction intervention, fill in the blank, with, which would with whatever you would, um, to explain how it would work. Would that be okay? I'm hoping our client can make small incremental changes so that he's safer. So we're asking permission where, um, talking about how harm reduction approaches things in an uh, incremental way. Um, and another option here is that quote on the right. Uh, we all wanna see Bob meet his health goals. And bottom line is there's great evidence that people do not change when we tell them to, and that negative reinforcement that could induce shame often entrenches behavior even further. Doesn't sound like any of us really see that as a goal. Um, so these are just some suggestions in how you might talk with providers without uh, triggering maybe defensiveness or um, that word again, resistance. Um, so when we're reorienting the dialogue, we're going reorienting to shared goals for and with the client. We're engaging in shared decision-making with the client and the other providers. And we're looking for opportunities to bring client into the discussion to speak on their own behalf or to share their own statements. I've, I know when I've been working with clients with other providers like doctors or methadone clinics, whatever it is that your client is also involved in, sometimes the conversation ends up just being me and the other provider talking about what we think about the client. So uh, trying to find a way to get that client's voice involved um, is super important in, uh, in um, just being recovery oriented and uh, guiding or guiding the conversation to have the client in the driver's seat of their treatment. All right, so the key here is we're checking our own reactions. An example might be, we might be, feel frustrated if the provider isn't on board with harm reduction. Um, and that can be distressing for us because we might have an idea of what is going to work best with the client based on all of our previous um, like engagement and rapport building and shared decision-making with them. But if we're able to check in with that uh, feeling of frustration or whatever comes up, we can then try to get into an empathetic stance, understanding that the other provider might be dealing with a similar amount of frustration, fear about what the client is going through, and that might be contributing to their re initial reaction to harm reduction. Um, you know, like all change, embracing harm reduction takes time. Uh, change occurs through feeling ownership for the adoption of new ideas. And I can say that it took me a long time to fully embrace harm reduction. 
And I really appreciate those who gave me this kind of feedback that helped me open up to harm reduction as an approach where they could validate that I wasn't coming, I wasn't um, having a, a difficult time wrapping my mind around harm reduction because I didn't care about the client as much or anything like that. It was mostly my own fear of what uh, what dangers my client might be in. So having someone hear that and then uh, educate me on what the, the real impacts of harm reduction interventions are was super helpful in me opening my mind to it. Um, and at the same time, we can't convince people to take up harm reduction in the same way that we can't simply convince people to stop using drugs. Convincing people is uh, not what the game is when we're working with other humans in a support uh, scenario. So even if uh, collaboration is challenging and other providers are slower to get on board um, the harm reduction train than we'd like, we also want to keep in mind that being involved in our clients' care from other providers, from other resources, gives us the best chance at reducing or helping our clients to reduce potential harm. Um, so even if we cannot uh, get the buy-in from each of their other care partners, us having uh, involvement and knowing everything that's going on can still help with the goal of reducing harms. And as you continue to model how harm reduction works to keep clients safer while using drugs, you'll inspire other providers. I know I've been inspired, and so I know that that is possible. Um, so what happens when other provider just won't get on board? We can weigh the potential harm of breaking continuity of care against staying with a non-autonomy supported provider. So if a client has, for instance, in my experience, a primary care provider who was uh, exacerbating stigma related to substance use, uh, we, I had to talk with the client and weigh the potential harm that could be from not having that continuity of care with that provider and how um, the impact of those services were. Um, we also want to involve our client and uh, support them in shopping around to find providers who might be um, more uh, open to harm reduction and helpful in that person's journey of reducing harms. So we talked a bit, uh, Elizabeth started us off talking about rights restricted or uh, otherwise restricted contexts that might impact harm reduction approaches. Um, so let's dig into that a little bit more now. Um, so on the last two slides, we covered providers who could use harm reduction, but didn't feel comfortable doing so. So they could, you know, they could use a harm reduction perspective and uh, provide information. However, uh, they just hadn't received enough information about it, or there might be other reasons. Right? But now we're going to shift to talking about folks who have their rights restrictive or in different contexts, including uh, being justice involved. So they might be on parole or probation. Um, in these contexts, providers 
they're unable to use harm reduction approaches due to policy. So think about a client who is on parole, needs to get drug tested every time they see their parole officer. It's part of their parole. It's in the, you know, whatever the law document is when they got uh, released. Um, and so there, it's not optional, right? Um, so how do we support clients in these situations where the menu of options for harm reduction interventions is smaller? What we can do is that first bullet point there, we can highlight when the client, where the client still can exercise choice within their current circumstances. We got to use our creativity sometimes to get past the barriers and see what is possible. Um, for instance, when a conserved client um, is enrolled in a program like FSP, Full Service Partnership, they're not necessarily choosing to be enrolled, right? That's been mandated um, by the uh, limits of their conservatorship. However, if you um, are able to build rapport with your conserved client, you can start to highlight small choices they do have within the program of FSP, for instance. For example, you can highlight choices around when and where to meet, if they'd like a cup of coffee, if that's appropriate for your program, what primary care clinic they prefer, et cetera. Um, just trying to elucidate choice where for, it can feel like there are so many um, places where they are not able to make bold choices due to the uh, restriction. It's also helpful to frame participation in mandated services as a step towards obtaining autonomy again, if that is the client's goal. Um, so kind of uh, highlighting the connection between uh, participating in those services that they don't have a choice in as getting closer to not having that, those uh, restrictions. Um, whether that's if they wanna give out of, out of a conservatorship, if they are working to get off parole, things like that. Even in these situations, advocacy is possible. You can write letters of support. These can be used in ODR, diversion or drug court, criminal court to advocate for things like diversion. Um, it's also great to use strengths-focused case writing that highlights any positive change. Um, I have one example of this, of what not to do from when I worked in the California prison system. I had a client who uh, I was, uh, I had to submit an overview of the client's progress to the correctional counselor. And in that note, I stated that the client had attended most that's the key word you have to remember of his group sessions. However, the correctional counselor showed my client the note, which I did not know would happen, but I'm glad it did because it was a good lesson for me to learn. And when my client saw the, what I had written, he approached me and confronted me saying that I made it seem as though he missed more than one group session by saying most when he only missed one the entire time he'd been on the unit. And he was totally right. I was not coming from a strengths perspective by using most. And um, I really appreciated him reaching out to me. And since then um, has really impacted the way that I write notes. 
Um, and so we want to make sure that we are uh, really thinking from the client's perspective on how our communication within these uh, rights restricted or justice involved settings um, would be taken by our clients and also by their other providers. And to finish the story I was telling about my client, I we were able to repair that rupture, which was really led us to have a really great rapport throughout the rest of our um, work together. And then I ran into him once he paroled and that was amazing. So anyway, thanks for letting me go down memory lane. Um, all right, so we're gonna talk a bit about Housing First um, and Housing First, we'll have some slides coming up after this that kind of talk about what Housing First means. Um, but generally you can understand it to mean that it's a low threshold, low barrier entrance to housing. Um, and some of the principles of Housing First are that you are, um, it is regardless of whether or not you're using substances, you have a right to housing. However, we know housing is a big obstacle in this country, but also specifically in Los Angeles County right now, and has been for quite some time. So our housing options for our clients are so limited that we really, it makes it really difficult to, um, to just have housing first options for clients. We need them to be housed however, right? We don't have that luxury often of picking and choosing. Um, so we may end up working with non-housing first programs that can require things like uh, full sobriety um, or impose more restrictions than housing first housing sites. Um, it can be difficult to support clients in using harm reduction approaches other than abstinence in these settings. Your client may also have additional restrictive contexts like a domestically violent relationship, being on a conservatorship, excuse me, or being held on a 5150. That means it's really up to us to flex our creativity muscles when we're aiding clients in achieving their harm reduction goals. Uh, we want to think outside the box here. Perhaps a client could plan to use outside of the home or plan to use according to drug testing schedules or even seek other housing options. It's critical to affirm that clients have choices even within these restrictive environments. Um, so just a couple of things to keep in mind when we're working with these non-harm reduction and non-housing first programs that there are some creative strategies if clients are not ready or willing to stop use altogether. Um, we still wanna work on reducing harms of the substance use and hopefully reduce the harm of that substance use on their housing specifically. All right, let's uh, review those housing first values. Housing is a right to which we're all entitled. Um, homelessness is first and foremost a housing problem and should be treated as such versus having to do with any particular um, aspect of a client's life that is uh, impacting their housing. We really want to focus on the housing issues. Um, people who are homeless 
or on the verge of homelessness should be stabilized in permanent housing as quickly as possible and connected to resources to sustain housing. I think we can all agree that this would be a dream if we could have this happen so much quicker and um, for longer. For many of our clients and issues that may have contributed to a household's homelessness can best be addressed once they are housed. And then the next slide, um, we just want you to have this information for context, um, but the five principles of housing first are immediate access to housing with no readiness condi conditions. Um, in this way, housing helps folks readiness for other things, and it's that first step, hence housing first. Choice, we really want to highlight um, consumer choice and self-determination. These are things we always wanna highlight and are supported by Housing First, um, a recovery orientation, which we've talked about, individualized and person-driven supports and community, social and community integration. So in an ideal world, all of the housing would have these things. Um, and if they don't, hopefully what we, what I talked about uh, previously is uh, you're able to keep those in mind and um, flex those creative harm reduction muscles as you go. And I think I'm passing it back to you now, Elizabeth. Thank you. So we are gonna go through practical strategies for substance use now. Um, we'll talk about safer use strategies. We'll get into some information about specific uh, drugs that people might use, ways they'll use them and overdose prevention. Okay, so let's to start with, talk about different ways, different routes of administration. Uh, that people can use to consume different substances. So uh, this is for, I'll, I'll pause on that thought actually. So here on the left, we have all of our methods. Um, we have snorting, injecting, smoking, swallowing or eating, um, and then shelving or booty bumping. Um, and so each of these is gonna have a different set of impacts in terms of how quickly then a drug is, um, drug impacts or causes intoxication, uh, how quickly it's metabolized. Um, and then it's gonna have benefits and harms based off of the, uh, someone's preferences for how they experience the high or intoxication or the drug's effects. Um, so, you know, benefits that they're experiencing and then harms that they might be experiencing. And then here on the right, we have some safer use strategies. So for snorting, that's gonna be a slower high than injecting. Um, it's the risks are that someone can have uh, damage to their nasal passageways, uh, their throat, their teeth, because it's going down the back of the throat. Um, there's a pathogen risk of sharing snorting implements. Um, so a safer use strategy would be to not share those snorting implements like dollar bills or straws, to chop powder finely, and to use saline nasal spray to help moisturize the nasal passages. Injecting is gonna cause the most immediate high or not, maybe not the most immediate here at the bottom, shelving also causes a very immediate high. Um, but injecting is going to cause a very quick high. We've got the risk of wounds, so ulcerations or abscesses um, where at the injection sites and pathogen risk again of sharing needles. So clean needles, you know, syringe exchange, utilizing those services, vein care and dose preparation skills. Um, depending on what someone is injecting, there's a, there's a multi-step process to do so safely. Um, and there are really great practical strategies, um, you know, that, that folks who are injecting can become educated around to reduce the risk of um, damage to tissues or veins. 
Smoking is an option. Um, that's an immediate high, shorter lived, and some drug is lost in smoke, so it's less, effic less efficient, less cost effective in that way. Uh, there's the, the harm of damage to lungs, pathogen risk, again, of sharing pipes or mouthpieces. So some safer use strategies. I worked at a um, agency in New York City that actually gave out safer smoking kits, uh, especially in areas where it was popular to smoke crack cocaine. Um, and those included like a, you know, some tips on safer smoking, uh, a rubber mouthpiece to put on a glass pipe um, because they frequently break. Um, and also, you know, if people have chapped lips where they could be sharing um, pathogens. So really, um, that was more of an engagement tool probably than anything. Uh, there were also like condoms and safer sex tips included in the um, little packet. Uh, but that was a way for workers to engage with folks and say, hey, I know you're doing this. I just want to help you do it more safely while you're still doing it. Um, swallowing. So this is going to be uh, the slowest high. Um, they're up to an hour for onset, longer high, but up to 50% of the drug will be lost to the liver in route to the brain. So, and there's also mediators based off of how much food someone has and um, how healthy their liver is and their GI system is. There's potential damage to the gut with stimulants and damage to other internal organs over time as a harm here. Um, some safer use strategies would be to eat first, um, be patient on the high, and so not uh, repeat doses or increase amounts too quickly uh, because there could be a risk of overdose if so. Shelving or booty bumping is a fast high, uh, it lasts longer. There can be damage to the anus if not done carefully and cross-contamination obviously with fecal matter, uh, pathogen risk of sharing supplies for doing this. Um, so using clean needleless syringes and lubricant would be some options for safer use if using that route of administration. Okay, so syringe safety. Um, I think you all probably have heard of syringe exchanges. They exist in LA County. We'll share a little bit of info on where they are in a minute. Um, these are great options for people to go get clean syringes and turn in dirty syringes. Um, or to get um, containers with which to store dirty syringes to then drop off. Um, you know, this is a definitely a public health concern in terms of uh, not having um, pathogen spread in terms of most popular hep C and HIV, but there are other infections that people can share through IV drug use. Um, and then also, you know, wound and vein care can rapidly escalate if people are especially, you know, not in settings where they can receive medical attention um, that can cause, uh, you know, situations where they might lose uh, digits or limbs. Um, they might end up having um, uh, uh, being hospitalized and maybe losing possessions if they are living on the streets or there could be impacts to housing. Uh, so we really want to take that uh, the medical aspects of that seriously um, and encourage safer syringe use. There is a protocol the CDC has for cleaning syringes. If someone is in a really you know tight situation, does not want to access clean syringes yet, you know is wanting to be safer with their syringe use, that's an option. It's linked on here, or you can just look it up. Um, it's pretty helpful. It's also uh, we have a little snapshot of it here on the right. People can use. Uh, laundry detergent bottles uh, that are labeled as a sharps container as an uh, alternative to having a traditional sharps container. Um, so that's a that's a substitute that's totally appropriate and fine, uh, maybe more accessible for some. 
And what else did I say? Oh, a soda or laundry detergent bottle um, can work in that regard. Okay. Um, and so if people don't have healthy veins that they can use, we might want to talk with them about using another route of administration and working with safety around that. Um, yeah, I'll just stop there with that. Um, so to general tips for safer drug use, you know, obtaining your own supplies. So having the stuff that you need, not having to rely on other people, A, for not having that dependency or potential like difficult transactional relationship, but B, for ensuring safety and cleanliness of materials. Um, making sure they're sterile. So that includes things like alcohol wipes, syringes, cookers, pipes, straws. Um, another big tip for safer drug use is to avoid binging on drugs to manage tolerance and supply. We'll talk about withdrawal in a moment. Withdrawal sucks. It's dangerous for certain uh, substances. Um, so moderating your one's use and not avoiding binging. So making a plan for use, sort of planning out doses. Uh, is a great way to not only um, not end up in withdrawals, um, not but will reduce risk for overdose and manage a steady supply. So has less um, risk for financial impact as well. And trying to buy from trusted people or the same source. So if someone has a dealer or you know someone they typically pick up whatever substance they're purchasing from, this uh, can be a way to try to ensure that it is not um, going to be a higher potency with opiates. This is a big factor. And now that fentanyl and fentanyl analogs and xylazine are in a lot of substances, not just opiates, uh, we, we want to have people, if they have any trusted relationships or have people that also purchase from the same dealer, if they can talk about potency, um, that's going to put them at lower risk for overdose. One of the greatest risks for um people actually coming out of restrictive contexts where they might not have been able to use, and that could be hospital incarceration, uh, if they are opiate users or if they're using substances that are spiked with fentanyl, is that their tolerance is decreased and uh, they're not they're not sure what the potency is going to be of the dose they're taking and then they overdose. All right, sanitization, sanitizing drug packages and smoking supplies with alcohol wipes, uh, not sharing drug use supplies, preparing your drugs yourself, um, so you know what you're taking. And uh, if you can't, watch the person and uh, sanitize their hands first. So if people are having someone else do it, just taking all precautions for sanitization and safety. Um, those are some safer drug use tips in general that you can share with folks who are using substances. Okay, so this is NASA's site. This is the North America Syringe Exchange Network. It's going to have a plot of different syringe exchanges. However, Two of the big ones in LA County are LA Community Health Project and Homeless Healthcare LA. They both also have, um, you know, a myriad of supportive services, harm reduction oriented services. Um, some examples are going to be that needle exchange, uh, outreach services, overdose prevention, education, and naloxone, hepatitis C testing, uh, HIV testing in here too, it's not noted, um, training and ed educational materials, and just warm supportive people. I don't know the extent to which they have, you know, like harm reduction groups or anything like that actively functioning right now, but this is a great way for people to get engaged in other services um, is going to a syringe exchange, you know, for the practical, the practical reason of having clean needles um, and also then just getting connected to folks who are going to continue to work in a non-judgmental and autonomy supportive way with them. All right, we're going to touch on a few different substances real quick. Um, Methamphetamine, uh, we know and acknowledge is a, a commonly used substance in LA County, and 
it can be a very challenging substance for folks to work with, especially mental health providers. Um, challenging in the sense that um, the impacts of it uh, make sort of understanding what is a psychiatric sy symptom and what is related to um, lack of sleep or the methamphetamines impact uh, very challenging. And we know there can be a lot of frustration around that and sort of uh, difficulties in engaging around methamphetamine use from a harm, redu harm reduction perspective because it's frustrating and because it can sometimes feel like it's getting in the way of the mental health treatment. But <laughs> we're also, we're looking at uh, substance use and mental health as co-occurring and trying to integrate a perspective. And so using harm reduction strategies where they are possible for methamphetamine use is still a great option for that. So for methamphetamines, swallowing is the safest way of using. Snorting, injecting, and smoking can all cause physical harm. Um, tolerance occurs more rapidly also when injecting or smoking methamphetamine. Taking breaks between use allows the body to recover, which can assist with fatigue, depression, and potential psychosis, and allowing time for nutrition. So stuff that falls by the wayside with methamphetamine use, since it's so long acting, is sleep and food and hydration. Um, some of the things, some of the uh, uh, psychiatric impacts end up being because someone hasn't slept in a couple of days. Um, dehydration, super common, uh, when mixed with alcohol, people are drinking alongside that, uh, even more so, um, covering the mouthpiece if someone is smoking again with a rubber, um, um, rubber mouthpiece, uh, cover they're called, uh, using one's own pipe or sanitizing what will touch lips if sharing is a great option there going slow and doing test doses. So not overloading from the get. And especially if a new supplier is, on um, is being accessed or if tolerance has been reduced if someone just hasn't used in a bit. Understanding one's crash patterns and planning ahead to try to avoid severe versions of them. So trying to have a soft landing, trying to prepare to have supplies on hand to support nutrition and sleep um, and hydration. So, you know, maybe that looks like uh, having some nutrition drinks or some electrolyte tablets or something like that, along with a, a source for water. Um, knowing what someone needs when, if, if they get to a point where they are experiencing um, psychosis, having that sort of like crisis plan in place can be helpful. All right, let's talk about alcohol use. Um, alcohol use is ubiquitous. Um, it is in some ways uh, a, a <laughs> up there with the more dangerous drugs, uh, because when people start to try to get better with it and see, stop their use, um, this is one of the substances where there is a risk of uh, great harm based off of withdrawal symptoms, which I'll touch on now. But to clarify alcohol here on the left, we've got some standard drinks. Um, these are a 12 ounce beer, a four to five, five ounce glass of wine and 1.5 fluid ounces of 80 proof liquor. Um, you know, the sort of approaches around moderation that exist include counting drinks, planning for uh, drinks, incorporating water and food, um, trying to not use alcohol at the same time as other substances. Um, but we, we, we speak to this standard drink thing because there has to be a way to count drinks and people might not be drinking a five ounce glass of wine. If you're providing services to them, no idea. They might be drinking out of like a bottle of liquor or, you know, malt liquor, things like that, things that have higher alcohol content. So if you're working with them around reducing their alcohol use, um, you need to have a way to sort of measure it. Right. Um, 
it makes sense to try and break down what they're consuming into standard drinks and do a little counting that way if they're open to that. Um, so avoiding binging on alcohol to maintain tolerance and supply. Also, alcohol can be expensive. Um, and we want to think on recording drinks, time of day consumed. Um, if someone is trying to stop their use to not get into withdrawal that becomes dangerous. Um, so that could look like setting an hourly timer to ensure one drink an hour or whatever rate or amount prevents withdrawal. So dangers of withdrawal from alcohol. Uh, withdrawal can begin within four to six hours of a last drink. Sometimes it's longer. Um, depends on someone's uh, dependency. Um, seizures are a risk for withdrawal from alcohol. These can be, again, any time from 12 to 48 hours after a last drink. And these can, uh, not the seizures, but uh, withdrawal symptoms can progress to more severe symptoms like delirium tremens, also called DTs. Um, so DTs occur in 5% of people experiencing alcohol withdrawal syndrome, and it kills 5% of those. So there's a risk of death with um, delirium tremens. What's going on is the brain is not able to smoothly readjust its chemistry after the alcohol is stopped. And this creates a temporary state of confusion and leads to dangerous changes in the way your brain regulates circulation and breathing. Uh, so the body's vital signs such as heart rate, blood pressure can dramatically change um, or under unpredictably change, creating a risk of heart attack, stroke, or death. Um, seizures also can be a risk factor for death if someone seizes and they, um, you know, there's a, a secondary impact like hitting their head or something like that, or being in an environment uh, that they are otherwise physiologically impacted. That's also a concern for death. So alcohol withdrawal symptoms can include agitation, insomnia, tachycardia, that's heart beating fast, tremor, GI upset, um, confusion, hallucinations, seizures, and DTs. Um, and of course, DTs and seizures are the, the scary ones and they can cause permanent brain damage and death. Prior history of severe withdrawal symptoms includes risk of recurrence. So if you're working with someone and they have had DTs before, that's really good to know because you might be wanting to focus on a medically assisted detox um, and talking about, or at least, you know, very careful intentional detox. And there are medications that can assist with mild to moderate symptoms, even via outpatient, uh, but severe symptoms are likely going to require um, inpatient medically assisted detox. Okay, benzo withdrawal, benzo benzodiazepines, the anti-anxiety medications can also cause seizures resulting in death, but they aren't going to cause DTs. So benzos are also dangerous in terms of withdrawal, but alcohol is the uh, most harmful, most potentially harmful. So benzodiazepines, if someone is dependent, um, ensure titration plans are so reducing incrementally to reduce risk of seizure. Um, for opiates, for potential withdrawal, um, we want to support people into accessing medication-assisted treatment, such as methadone or buprenorphine. Uh, Chelsea will talk about these in a little bit. Um, stimulants, when people are withdrawing from methamphetamine or cocaine, ensuring supports and coping strategies in place for psychological symptoms like depression. And again, making sure people have like whatever medications they need, food, drinks, um, electrolyte drinks, protein-based drinks if they're not able to eat solid food and like over-the-counter medications that are good for pain management like ibuprofen or uh, GI symptom uh, management via like Pepto-Bismol or Imodium. It's really practical stuff. When we have people, you know, stopping using a substance and the experience of withdrawal is so painful and uncomfortable, like, we can have empathy for and imagine that, oh my goodness, like, of 
course, <laughs> they're going to want to go back to the substance to uh, not feel that awful. So what we can do uh, in supporting withdrawal uh, safely and more comfortably is really uh, a great intervention. Let's touch on poly substance use. Um, so this, uh, these numbers at the top, one plus one, plus one equals five, refers to the fact that some substances, when they're used together, uh, have more of an impact because they're used together. So some substances, if I use, you know, um, I'm trying to think of an example here, uh, alcohol and methamphetamine, uh, that they're just gonna be additive. It's gonna be one plus one equals two. I'm I'm intoxicated from the alcohol and the methamphetamine. Now others uh, like alcohol, benzodiazepines and opioids are all central nervous system depressants, but they also potentiate each other. So they have a synergistic relationship that increases the other's effect. Um, so that can cause, with, I'm, I know my dose for my opiates, I know my dose for alcohol, but I'm using them together. And so all of a sudden my one plus one is equaling five and there's a greater risk uh, for uh, overdose, uh, CNS depression and uh, fatality. And I, I think everyone probably knows this, um, but possibly not. Uh, so people do engage in polysubstance use very frequently. Trying to suggest to people to not do this can be difficult. So, <laughs> you know, rather than saying, don't do this, knowing, understanding dose, um, dosing and then timing, um, you know, maybe someone consumes their opiate and then later after they know they're okay, after an hour or two, they consume some alcohol. So layering things, staggering them can be a good harm reduction intervention. All right, so just was touching on these, but say for polysubstance use, staggering substances, low and slow, that means low dose and slow dosing, as in not just dose, 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 but waiting. Avoid using alone, having a use buddy or someone who ideally isn't intoxicated at the same time as you, also frequently unrealistic as a suggestion, um, but still not using alone if possible is gonna be helpful. We'll talk about some other options for um, having uh, uh, the never lose alone service, which can be a good option for if someone is truly using a loan, they can um, have a service that can call to check in on them uh, without any you know potential risk of criminalization or getting in trouble. Um, but just to make sure they're still conscious or uh, but I'll get to that in a second. Uh, logging doses and drinks. So making notes like they, writing on their hand, like, hey, I, I did this dose at 2 p.m., you know, uh, so when they look at their watch or catch the time later from someone, it's three or 4 p.m., uh, they can understand that that much time has passed rather than wondering what when did I last take uh, whatever I was taking. All right, and keeping in mind that synergistic potentiating relationship between some medications. This is a video on safer injection sites, which I'm not going to play. Uh, it's really interesting, but it, it's not something that exists in California yet. I, I would encourage you to check out um, we can share the link for the video. There are many uh, little, you know, news specials, documentaries uh, available on safer injection uh, services or sites. There's uh, supervised injection sites or programs, or that's another sort of acronym or set of words. They're all synonymous, but these refer to uh, programs where people can come and safely use uh, injection drugs with nurse supervision, other harm reduction services. Um, you know, there's there'll be immediate overdose prevention response um, and, you know, just a potential to get connected to services more so 
same as would be the case with um, syringe exchanges. So I believe I mean, Canada's had one for a while. Some places in Europe do, uh, or Canada's had multiple, I suppose. But the earliest one is from Vancouver, and there's a great documentary on it. And if I can remember the name of that uh, Vancouver syringe, um, sorry, safer use, uh, safer injection site, <laughs> I will share it in a bit. Um, but New York is next up to have uh, one of these programs, and they have uh, they're fantastic for getting people engaged in services, eventually supporting them to not use um, substances as much or at all, um, and are fantastic for keeping people alive. All right, so we've talked about opiates and opioids. I've been referring to them, but let's talk about what they are and why they are so important to understand in your work. Um, some common opioids include uh, all these pain medications. <laughs> um, we uh, overprescribing has reduced, uh, but these are still accessible. Um, that people can access them and buy them on the street. They can still get them from doctors at times. Um, these are really helpful medications for pain management, um, and uh, not all are used on like an outpatient basis via pills. Some are patches, um, and some are administered, you know, in medical settings for surgery. So people can have an initiation of opiate use by uh, medical, you know, for medical purposes. Um, and at times when, you know, we know this historically and why we have an epidemic now is that people were overprescribed that and they got hooked on it and became dependent. Um, other opiates and opioids, we also, you know, we, there's um, opium, that's still uh, a substance that people do use. Uh, there's heroin also, um, that is a street drug. Uh, heroin does have a history of initially being used uh, as a treatment. Um, I cannot, I don't know the history of it that well, uh, but we know that uh, things things changed with that and um uh, it became a street drug. So these are naturally occurring. They are derived from the poppy plant. And then we also have synthetic uh, opiates that are uh, that mimic the exact same effects as them. Let's talk about fentanyl. So on um, day one, we did talk about fentanyl and you know our country's current sort of approach to managing it that's going to be uh, attempting to regulate drug trade um, and also uh, schedule fentanyl um, permanently uh, so there's greater uh, criminalization of it greater risk to dealing it to having it to using it etc um, but fentanyl and its analogs are um, a, a major factor in overdose rates currently um, so it is the most common drug involved in overdose deaths at this point, uh, countrywide. Uh, it's mixed into all substances. Uh, I think we've mentioned that already. Um, so what goes on with it is that it takes a teeny, teeny, tiny physical amount of it. Um, so it's easily uh, easy to mix into other substances um, with such a, a great increase of risk of overdose. Um, people cannot know if they're uh, going to consume it unless they can test for it. Um, there are test strips now that are effective at testing for um, fentanyl. I don't know how, uh, how accurate they are with all of the analogs, um, but that's something that if you're you know, interested in understanding it better, you can do a little more research on it. Uh, naloxone or Narcan is a medicine that can be given to a person to reverse a fentanyl overdose, just the same as any other opiate. Um, so 
what we see, what's specific about uh, fentanyl, if that's at play, uh, multiple naloxone doses might be necessary. Um, and fentanyl is in, you know, heroin. It's, it's, that's a little bit of a, uh, in some ways, it's a, a good way to have like a lower volume and with greater impact. Um, so that's cost savings for the drug trade. Um, it also, as I mentioned before, is in other substances. So checking everything is probably wise at this point. Um, all substances can be checked with test strips. Just a small amount can be um, tested. I'm going to kind of move quickly through overdose mortality data because I feel like it's not even a point we need to provide evidence for at, at this state. Um, you know, if anyone isn't aware of the overdose rates um, for, through doing your work, uh, well, I'm actually happy for you in a way. <laughs> it means you're not being exposed to it and it's really scary and tough. And I imagine many of you are working with people who are overdosing or you've experienced or lost people you provide services to, or they uh, have lost people in their communities to overdose. Um, so who it's impacting uh, sort of more, uh, I can touch on though. Um, we're seeing 90% uh, of all fatal overdoses now including synthetic opioids, um, so fentanyl and its buddies. Um, we saw a sharp increase in overdose mortality during the pandemic. Not surprising, people got disconnected from uh, their dealers, had different sources, they got disconnected from services, uh, didn't have you know access to MAT just as easily, medication-assisted treatment. Um, we're also stressed out and terrified of the pandemic and maybe trying to cope with that. Uh, so all these factors came together to um, create a 800% increase and uh, overdoses from uh, opiates, which is not good. And it continues to be a problem and increase now. Uh, we have people of color, so uh, black individuals and individuals in their 20s being overrepresented amongst overdose fatalities during the pandemic. Um, we also see that uh, people of color uh, ongoing are overrepresented in uh, being disconnected from services and the people experiencing homeless po homelessness population. Um, and with overdose in LA County. Um, what else do I want to touch on here? Um, let's see here. So drug overdose remained the leading cause of death amongst people experiencing homelessness during uh, both years of the pandemic. So we're calling that 2020 and 2021 roughly uh, for this purpose. And overdose deaths increased by 78% from the pre to post pandemic onset year. There's just a few stats here. Um, on this slide, we've got uh, here on the black psychostimulants with abuse potential that is uh, methamphetamine. And then the purple here is synthetic opioids, including, or sorry, excluding methadone, but we're talking about fentanyl basically. And so from 2017 to 2021, we have this, this extremely sharp increase of both being involved in overdose deaths. Uh, they're not, uh, so they're not mutually inclusive. What am I trying to say? Uh, if the black is co-occurring, the, the line that uh, shows methamphetamine increase in overdose is co-occurring alongside the purple, the fentanyl overdose. Um, when we look at that, it's not to say that um, methamphetamine alone is causing that overdose, it's the fact that fentanyl is in the methamphetamine. Okay, is that making sense? All right, let's talk about Narcan. Um, you know, I think most people have heard of it. Uh, it's also known as naloxone. 
Uh, it's a medication that be, can be administered via injection, uh, intramuscular injection, or uh, as a nasal spray. Um, it is not currently a prescription drug, as this slide says. Uh, it has just been approved to be uh, accessible over the counter. I don't know how accessible it is yet is in terms of, you know, are pharmacies carrying it? Uh, what does it cost? Uh, how, what's that su uh, supply look like? California, as I mentioned on day one, is in the midst of uh, overhauling their approach to overdose prevention and, you know, uh, endeavoring to um, manufacture uh, not zone even within states. So not sure really what the status update on uh, the implementation of its availability over the counter looks like, but it is still accessible through uh, some ways that we'll talk about in just a minute. And uh, I couldn't even speak to whether it can still be prescribed <laughs> if it's available over the counter, I'm assuming, yes. Um, so this is a medication that works almost immediately to reverse an opiate overdose. We'll watch a quick video on exactly how that works. I'm gonna not explain it uh, and to not duplicate that because I think the video is uh, really helpful. Um, but I'll just touch on a few points here. Uh, it can be used by anyone. Uh, we do an overdose prevention or sorry, a naloxone info session uh, actually pretty much every other month at this point. Um, we have one coming up at the end of May that is an hour and a half or an hour long, I'm forgetting Chelsea, uh, session on overdose prevention via naloxone. Um, so if you want more information on it, that's a great option. It's not a training to be able to administer it. It's just more of a training to understand it. Um, we understand that some programs, some agencies don't support their workers, their providers into carrying it and using it as an intervention that's sanctioned by the agency. We are by no means via that info session or in this uh, training today trying to say, well, you should do it anyway, especially now that it's over the counter. Uh, we are hoping to support some myth busting around it um, and, um, you know, support agencies, support providers at all levels into understanding it better and considering how it can be integrated into their services. Ideally, uh, a lot of a lot of supportive systems or other systems do utilize it. Um, so I think that change will eventually occur more uh, more fully across all service sectors, but we're not quite there yet. So um information is helpful. And if you're, if you want to attend that or send anyone, you know, to attend it, um, suggest it to your, you know, administrators or managers, uh, we welcome you. So these groups here, uh, are more likely to overdose and less likely to have access to naloxone. So we just touched on who's been overdosing more, uh, but alongside this, they're less likely to have this overdose, uh, reversal medication. So the serious mental illness co-occurring co disorder population who you, if you're in this training, likely support people who are experiencing homelessness, uh, gender males are more at risk, uh, racial ethnic minor minorities are disproportionately impacted, those exiting incarceration and youth and young adults. So just recently also there has been um, an initiative to uh, integrate uh, naloxone access into schools. So LA Unified School District uh, is doing great work with this right now. If you work in schools, I bet you could comment on how, you know, what stages that uh, that is at in terms of implementation, but um, it hasn't been available in schools as, uh, so, um, uh, so consistently, um, or even sort of, I don't know if it's actually even been sanctioned by the school district. So this is wonderful because kids are going to be the people who really don't want to say, Hey, I <laughs> want to carry this. And because they don't want to get in trouble. 
Um, and people exiting incarceration, again, that has to do with that tolerance uh, issue, uh, that their tolerance drops while they're incarcerated, come out, and they're at great risk for overdose. Um, in fact, I have a, a stat on that somewhere. Let me try to pull it up. Not seeing it immediately, but maybe I will get to it in a minute. Uh, so naloxone is effective. Uh, these are a few studies that show how successful it is at preventing fatalities and uh, how many of the cases don't have side effects. When we talk about side effects from naloxone, that can be the fact that it uh, moves people out of intoxication and immediately into withdrawal. So they can become agitated, um, really unhappy because <laughs> withdrawal from opiates does not feel good. Um, they can be, you know, surprised, uh, uncertain of what's going on, not aware that they just had overdosed, of course. Um, so some of the side effects and some of the myths around naloxone are that it makes people, you know, become aggressive. Um, we want to suggest that we consider, you know, someone else's psychiatric picture, what other substances they might've been using before that. Cause again, naloxone only works for opiates. It's not changing anything. If they've been, if they drink a bunch of alcohol, they're still going to be drunk. Um, it's not going to impact that. So there are a number of reasons why someone might not respond uh, so positively right afterwards. But at the end of the day, lives are being saved. So we, we're fully in support of its use. And there's good research to show that no one is getting hurt from it. It doesn't tend to have any like impact to someone's physical well-being. Um, so who's been using it? Law enforcement, the fire department, EMS, uh, inpatient and outpatient settings. Jails have been offering it upon release. Uh, here's that stat, uh, January 2019 to June 2020, over 50% of deaths post-release from incarceration were due to overdose. Um, so that is staggering. Um, homeless Outreach has been using it. There's been initiatives also to really integrate it into um, outreach teams. So we had, you know, 54,000 units distributed summer 2021 to March 2022 uh, for uh, DHS. Um, Lasa Home and other outreach teams uh, have it accessible and September 2022 is when LAUSD started making it accessible in schools. Power reduction orgs also. I'm going to skip this slide because the video does a better job of explaining how it works, but that's there. I uh, want to touch really briefly on opioid impairment versus overdose. So if you're working with someone and you're like, well, are they just impaired or have they overdosed? Here are some differences you might uh, want to look for. Um, with impairment, we've got relaxed muscles, slowed or slurred speech, sleep or fatigue, nodding, uh, reduced heart rate, but still responsive to stimulation like yelling or a sternal rub uh, or pinching. With overdose, breathing is infrequent or has stopped and the pulse is slow. There will be deep snoring or gurgling. Um, you'll notice that the skin is uh, pale and clammy, uh, maybe lips uh, and fingers look blue. Loss of consciousness, heart rate is slow, erratic or non-existent and unresponsive to stimulation. Um, so anyone can administer this again, uh, no one will get legally in trouble ever for administering it. Again, we can't speak to your agency's policy and what limits they have for you as an employee. Um, but anyone can have it and it's better that more people have it because what we really want it, <laughs> where we want it to be is in the hands of the people that are around those who are using substances when they're using, uh, the opiates, right? If it's not there, if someone else doesn't have it. It's not helpful. People aren't going to be able to administer it to themselves, but if they have it on hand, maybe they can um, uh, help someone else. You know, we're just walking around the streets. If you're doing your job or just walking around the world, having it on hand is a great idea. You're, we're seeing people overdose in public all the time in LA County. Um, so there's that. 
All right. Um, I'm going to move forward to that video real quick. Naloxone saves lives. No time to sit idly by. More and more people are dying of overdose from the likes of heroin, fentanyl, and prescription pain medications like oxycodone and hydrocodone. These are all examples of opioids. Opioids are drugs derived from the opium poppy plant or made in the lab. They can treat pain, cough, and diarrhea. But opioids can also be addictive and even deadly. The number of opioid overdose deaths has escalated more than 400% since the turn of the century, with tens of thousands of lives now being lost every year. But many deaths can be prevented with a life-saving treatment, naloxone. When given right away, naloxone can work in minutes to reverse an overdose. Naloxone is safe, has few side effects, and some forms can be administered by friends and family. When is naloxone used? You can save a life. First, recognize signs of overdose. Limp body, pale clammy face, blue fingernails or lips, vomiting or gurgling sounds, inability to speak or be awakened, slow breathing or heartbeat. If you see these symptoms, call 911 immediately and consider the use of naloxone if available. How is naloxone given? Home preparations include a nasal spray given to someone while they lie on their back or a device that automatically injects medicine into the thigh. Sometimes, more than one dose is needed. The person's breathing also needs to be monitored. If the person stops breathing, consider rescue breaths and CPR if you are trained until first responders arrive. How does naloxone work? Naloxone is an opioid antagonist which means that it blocks opioid receptors from being activated. It is so strongly attracted to the receptors that it knocks other opioids off. When opioids are sitting on their receptors, they change the activity of the cell. Opioid receptors are found on nerve cells all around the body. In the brain, opioids produce feelings of comfort and sleepiness. In the brainstem, opioids relax breathing and reduce cough. In the spinal cord and peripheral nerves, opioids slow down pain signals. In the gastrointestinal tract, opioids are constipating. These opioid actions can be helpful. The body actually produces its own opioids called endorphins, which help calm the body in times of stress. Endorphins help produce the runner's high that helps marathon runners get through grueling races. But opioid drugs, like prescription pain medications or heroin, have much stronger opioid effects, and they're more dangerous. Over time, frequent opioid use makes the body dependent on the drugs. When the opioids are taken away, the body reacts with withdrawal symptoms such as headache, racing heart, soaking sweats, vomiting, diarrhea, and tremors. For many, the symptoms feel unbearable. With continued use, opioid receptors also become less responsive, and the body develops tolerance to the drugs. More drugs are needed to produce the same effects, which makes overdose more likely. Overdose is dangerous, especially for its effect in the brainstem, relaxing breathing. Breathing can be relaxed so much that it stops, leading to death. Naloxone knocks opioids off their receptors all around the body, in the brainstem, naloxone can restore the drive to breathe and save a life. 
But even if naloxone is successful, opioids are still floating around, so expert medical care should be sought as soon as possible. Naloxone works for 30 to 90 minutes before the opioids return to their receptors. Naloxone may promote withdrawal because it knocks opioids off their receptors so quickly. But otherwise, naloxone is safe and unlikely to produce side effects. Naloxone saves lives. From 1996 to 2014, at least 26,500 opioid overdoses in the United States were reversed by laypersons using naloxone. While naloxone is a potentially life-saving treatment, more needs to be done to solve the opioid overdose epidemic. So that is how it works and how it is administered. So again, Chelsea popped in the chat. Uh, thank you so much. Our naloxone info session registration link, um, please attend. It's also recorded. We have a, so if you can watch it at any time as a, a recording uh, or listen to it. Um, but we cover what, how uh, workers, agencies can um, get naloxone and become trained to use it. So there's a quick training that has to go with it if you're going to receive supply of it. Um, and you as an individual can do this. Uh, you can also, again, as an agency do this. Um, there's a level uh, locally through the overdose education naloxone distribution or otherwise known as OIND um, in LA County. Uh, that's an option for receiving supply and training. Um, also, some of the harm reduction orbs Orgs also can link you to supply and provide training um, like HECLA or um, LA Community Health Project. Uh, but OWIND here also will have uh, other OD prevention training videos and uh, medication-assisted treatment provider list and maps of LA County Syringe Exchange. So some other great options there. It's also possible to get a standing order, uh, it's so-called, through the state. Um, where if you at an agency or organizational level, you want to have a standing order and supply of naloxone, that might be a good option too. Okay, um, one last point on overdose prevention, never uh, use alone is that option I was talking about where someone can uh, use the service, Facebook message them, um, I think it's text or call as well, let them know I'm, I'm using, they'll take a little demographic information, they'll, they'll check back in um, in a certain amount of time, and if the person doesn't respond, they can then uh, get EMS to go to the site uh, where the person is um, to check and see if they've overdosed, so that's an option as well. Here on this slide, we've got some additional Narcan naloxone training opportunities. Um, you can look through those at your leisure um, outside of our info session. And uh, I want to touch on two last bits here. As I mentioned, fentanyl um, test strips are a great option for reducing the risk of fentanyl use, unknowing fentanyl use. Um, so they can test for uh, the presence of fentanyl in a dozen analogs. Thank you, Chelsea, for updating that. Uh, so that's not comprehensive. Not all the analogs are testable, which is not ideal, but better than nothing. Um, it can't test for the quantity of the drug in sample. Um, so it can't tell the user how much fentanyl is present. And I do just want to give the caveat or the disclaimer, really, people sometimes want to use fentanyl. If they have a, <laughs> a, a supply of drugs and they test for it, it might be that they still use that. They just do a much lower dose. Um, so just working with reality here, some people do like the fact that fentanyl is in their um, opiates. Uh, important to discuss additional harm reduction strategies to use if fentanyl test strips are positive and intention is to use the drug. So never use alone is linked here too and having naloxone on hand for sure. Uh, here's where on the left to access fentanyl test strips in LA County, 
A lot of these are through APLA. Um, so that's there uh, for you to uh, utilize. And finally, I want to just touch very briefly on xylazine. It is new um, on the scene, new-ish on the scene as a problematic substance that's being uh, integrated into other substances. Um, just very basic information on it. It's not an opiate. So naloxone doesn't do anything for it. Um, it uh, there's no overdose reversal option for it uh, medically. It's commonly mixed into fentanyl. Uh, so 23% of fentanyl powder seized nationally in 2023 contains xylazine. Um, so it's pretty substantially integrated. Uh, and it's also in heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine. The big risk with it uh, is that, uh, a few big risks with it, um, it can cause a lot of tissue damage. Uh, so uh, there's a higher risk of uh, necrosis. Um, also with injection and anywhere else someone has like sores or wounds on their body, it can make those um, also um, just ulcerate or um, not heal. I'm not a medical professional, so I don't know the right language here, but uh, that's one of the big risks with it. It can also cause high blood pressure, CNS depression, so risk for respira respiratory depression um, and death and anemia. And the anemia iron thing isn't well understood yet. Um, it can potentiate uh, fentanyl, making it feel more like heroin um, and can assist with sleep. And some users like that. So there's some intentional use around uh, not only fentanyl, but xylazine. Um, and some harm reduction interventions would include uh, potential for other routes of administration to be safer because it's so damaging to tissue. Uh, test strips, uh, which I understand now exist. I don't know how accessible they are yet. This is pretty new. Hemoglobin testing and supplementing with iron if someone is intentionally trying to use this to prevent anemia, um, managing uh, skin um, health, and then general safety to prevent risks from sedation and respiratory depression. Okay. Chelsea, I hand it off to you. Thanks, Elizabeth. I was just reading about those strips when I was looking into fentanyl test strips. Um, it's wild to have more and more things to look out for. Um, all right, let's transition into talking about medication-assisted treatment for different types of substance use disorders. Uh, so probably we're all most familiar, well, I don't know if that's the case, but I think I was most familiar with methadone when I started learning more about um, these different interventions. And uh, so these, if you're the same, there are a bunch more in addition to methadone that are available for folks, depending on the substance they're using. All right, so let's talk about the ones you see here on this slide. So first we have naltrexone. And naltrexone works by blocking the effect of opioid receptors and decreasing cravings and urges to use alcohol or opioids. So naltrexone, I'll talk about twice because it can be used both for alcohol use disorder and um, opioid use disorder. Uh, this allows folks who take the medication to control urges to use and help maintain abstinence from these substances. If a client is an opiate user, we'll talk about that in a moment, um, as withdrawal symptoms can be uh, involved with its use. And naltrexone you can get as a monthly shot or a daily pill. Next up, we have a composite, which I don't know if that's the official pronunciation, but that's mine today. 
Um, this medication works by decreasing cravings and urges to use alcohol as well. It's a pill taken three times a day and requires five days of abstinence before starting. Uh, di okay, another fun one to pronounce, disulfiram, which is otherwise and more commonly, I would think, known as antabuse. Um, it's a little different from the first two medications. We talked briefly about positive and negative reinforcement during our MI discussion last week, I believe. Um, disulfiram relies on negative reinforcement as a motivator, which as we discussed and has been researched, um, does not work as well as, uh, and doesn't work very well for most people, uh, positive reinforcement methods tend to work better. Um, officially, it works by blocking the breakdown of alcohol in the body, which leads to a buildup of toxic alcohol-related compounds that can cause people who are drinking alcohol while taking this medication to become very sick. Um, so if someone is taking this medication and uh, uses alcohol, they will feel very bad. And we'll talk about MAT for opioids. So I'm going to talk about methadone first. I'm sure most of you are very familiar with it, um, so I'll cover it pretty quickly. But methadone is taken to help people to stop using opioid medicines and drugs like heroin, hydrocodone, oxycodone, or oxycontin, as it's, we may be familiar, um, morphine, and fentanyl. And how it works is it uh, works by blunting or blocking the effects of other opioids and effectively reduces both cravings and withdrawal symptoms from those same opioids. Um, a fun fact about methadone I thought was interesting is that it was synthesized during World War II as a pain reliever. Um, and now we have it for this use as well. So that's methadone. Uh, buprenorphine is... Uh, also taken daily and works similarly to methadone on a chemical level, um, but it has a few key differences that might make it work better for certain folks that you're working with. First, its pain relieving or, and euphoric effect is half as strong as methadone. And second, it has a ceiling effect where after a certain point, taking more will, won't increase the effects of the drug, which makes it less desirable to use in bigger and bigger quantities. Um, often buprenorphine is combined with naloxone, which Elizabeth just, um, showed that video about and talked about. And so when you combine, when buprenorphine, often called bup, is combined with naloxone, it is then prescribed as suboxone. So as you know, as we just talked about, naloxone is used to prevent overdose death and, um, basically reversed an overdose and results in immediate and uncomfortable withdrawal symptoms. We went over that. So the naloxone that's in Suboxone, uh, along with the buprenorphine, that naloxone will trigger these same uncomfortable withdrawal symptoms. If someone were to try it, um, were to try to inject their medication instead of taking it as prescribed. Um, so I actually had a client uh, who was very involved in harm reduction stuff. He volunteered at a place in San Francisco um, and ended up, I think, getting hired there. 
Um, but he and I were working on harm reduction strategies for him, his own wellness. And he asked if he could just get prescribed buprenorphine without the naloxone. Um, and that was would make him more likely to, uh, to try out that medication-assisted treatment. Um, and so we met with his primary care provider and talked that through that PCP was supportive and he was able to get that. So just, in, just a, a quick little anecdote about um, how advocacy within like those <laughs> collaborative care that we were talking about earlier can um, occur when it comes to this, like there are different things. And also my client knew more about it than I did at the time. I learned it from him. So, um, all right. So the last one I'll talk about on this slide is naltrexone. Uh, we covered it on the previous slide, but a reminder that naltrexone is prescribed for both alcohol and opiate users who wish to stop and it requires abstinence. Um, let me make sure. And I did mention this, but I want to say it again since we're on this slide. If your brain works like mine does, I would need it repeated. So if a client is an opiate user, be sure to discuss with the pre prescribing doctor of naltrexone um, because naltrexone can cause severe withdrawal if the opiates have been used within seven to 10 days. Um, so keep that in mind for naltrexone as a MAT. So um, a helpful thing that came about during the pandemic was um, expanded access to medication-assisted treatment. Um, and what used to be the case is access to these medications was more limited, but there's been a number of adjustments that hopefully will become permanent over time. So for schedule three to four medications, telemedicine is available in lieu of an in-person appointment for buprenorphine and naltrexone, and methadone take-homes and pickups and deliveries were expanded to be more accessible. If you look on that second bullet point, buprenorphine or naltrexone could be initiated with a telemedicine evaluation. So um, as most people know, we were in a state of emergency related to COVID-19 and that was just lifted. And so there was a question on would telemedicine still be uh, available uh, instead of in-person visits. So that is being um, submitted to the federal government to be um, extended and with the idea to make that a permanent um, availability. So you can see there's some details about that. More details will emerge. Um, the latest news is just from five days ago. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, and then you can see new methadone patients still require a physical evaluation, even with the um, increased access. Um, so this, what uh, the increased access made methadone more um, accessible for a lot of people. So folks could get uh, take-home doses. Um, hospitals were granted rights to give more take-home doses. So that's all been really good news. Here's some additional um, expansion of MAT that occurred last year. So the slide before, sorry, it's a little probably need to reorganize those, but um, there was some initial expansion. There was some um, follow-up expansion based on those 
from uh, this year. And then last year, um, the DEA expanded access so that folks working in hospitals, clinics, and emergency rooms could dispense that three-day supply I mentioned. Um, there are increased numbers of mobile methadone treatment facilities. Um, and then as you can see, the DEA is still working to make the telehealth regulations permanent. So we'll see where that goes. So a great way to keep current on what's going on with medication-assisted treatment is to join this meeting that occurs on the fourth Wednesday of each month from noon to one um, on the, the MAT consultation team. Um, this is great if you have clients engaging in MAT um, and you just like to discuss with others how that's going, updates as they're happening, uh, feel free to check it out. I think that would be just really helpful to uh, demystify anything, any of these changes that might be kind of ongoing. So for Schedule two medications, i.e. those that have a high potential for abuse, if you remember that slide from a previous session, uh, 90 days supplies were approved. Um, for opioids, it's recommended that naloxone or Narcan is also prescribed. This is something you can advocate for with your client's permission. Um, as we know, naloxone has gone over the counter, so this might shift as that um, continues to develop. So we do have more kind of COVID-19 related information in here. And though we're not in the height of the pandemic now, some consider the pandemic over, but we still have a lot of people getting COVID and other respiratory illnesses. Um, I think it's still important information to consider when we're talking about um, risk and respiratory concerns. So, one thing to know is that withdrawal can mimic COVID symptoms or COVID and withdrawal symptoms can, some of them can be related. Um, so look out for COVID symptoms that are, are less, uh, that are more unique, I suppose, like the persistent cough, things like that. Um, also just to keep in mind that folks who use drugs are at an increased risk of hospitalization and death, death because of the respiratory nature of COVID-19 and other respiratory illnesses. Um, so I know at this point, some people have had multiple COVID infections. They may have ongoing symptoms like long COVID. Um, so these are things to keep in mind, um, especially if you have a client who has any sort of impact to their respiratory system, um, how basically uh, over uh, how uh, those, sorry, those symptoms can be exacerbated during withdrawal. All right, so this is an example from during the, the COVID-19 um, kind of first couple years of using that drug set setting method to talk about um, harm reduction. And we'll go into some additional examples in, in the next hour and 15 minutes. Um, but this just gives you an idea of what to what folks might consider um, dr using drug set setting during COVID-19 uh, early days. So 
the drug, you might want to think about how there was reduced or inconsistent access to the source, which can mean changes in potency and dosing choices. I mean, just based on what we've talked about today, we would also want to think about the xylitine and fentanyl and how those might be impacting the drugs. The set, the mindset, there might be more fear, uncertainty. Folks are still dealing with mental health symptoms that may have been exacerbated by isolation or you know, personal loss, things like that, that occurred as a result of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, housing may have shifted more rapidly than it did in the past based on different programs that came and went during the pandemic. So those are things to consider. Um, and then finally setting, folks may have experienced isolation or displacement, which can increase overdose risk. They may have had reduced access to a you know, varying services when we were in lockdown mode as well. So um, not as pertinent today since we're out of kind of lockdown times, but um, we don't know what the future holds. This, uh, these types of scenarios could happen again. Um, so good to consider. And I know we're jumping around a little bit here, but another drug to consider thinking about with when it comes to harm reduction is nicotine, which is in tobacco. Um, so just like with other substances, harm reduction can be applied to tobacco and nicotine use. Smokers can reduce use. They can replace the method of use either with a method approved by doctors like nicotine replacement therapy, um, the patch, the pill, no, not the pill, <laughs> that's different, sorry, the patch, the gum, um, there's like little inhalers people can use, get from their doctors or the drugstore. They're also not unapproved uh, harm reduction methods for using, for uh, reducing harms from tobacco or nicotine use, um, such as e-cigarettes, which has very different, uh, we inconclusive research, uh, chewing tobacco, other smokeless options exist as well that folks may uh, want to try for harm reduction purposes. Um, there's also something, there's a correlation between people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia and smoking. So if you look at the statistics, 80 to 90% of those diagnosed with schizophrenia smoke cigarettes versus 25 to 30% of the general population. It's huge uh, difference, right? 80 to 90% the vast majority versus about a third is incredible, um, incredibly huge to me. It blows my mind every time I read that statistic. And this can be explained because nicotine has an effect on the brain of folks who have schizophrenia. It can temporarily improve cognition, ability to think, um, and sensory abilities. So when someone with schizophrenia quits nicotine, they're likely to experience increasing psychotic symptoms, making it very difficult to quit. So that might be a helpful way to remember how nicotine can be helpful for those with schizophrenia 
in the short term um, and make it more difficult to, uh, to quit, especially cold turkey. Um, another thing to consider if someone uses uh, nicotine is primary care and dental care. These are harm reduction interventions for smokers. This way, a doctor is keeping track of this person's health who's at risk, at increased risk for smoking related health issues and dental consequences of smoking can be properly treated or prevented. This is where harm reduction gets creative, right? You wanna think outside the box, how else can someone reduce the harm, the impact of nicotine? make sure they're getting seen and screened by their doctors and their dentists um, to make sure nothing, uh, things aren't, are, are being caught or have a better chance of being caught early um, and treated. So we have a video um, that I encourage you to watch. We're not gonna take the time to watch it today, but it goes over the connection that can occur between use of marijuana or cannabis um, and it, having a diagnosis of schizophrenia um, had no clue, makes so much sense. Um, so yeah, check out that video if you want to know more about cannabis and schizophrenia. And here we have a long list of drugs um, and a link to a couple of websites authored by people who use drugs, which, um, you know, I think we want to uh, respect, trust, um, I don't know, admire the expertise of the people with lived experience. So highly recommend checking out those websites for uh, safer use tips from people who have experience using them. And then here's a non-comprehensive list of commonly used drugs. Um, and then if you follow that link at the top, you can get more information about them. Yeah, and I think that's all I have to say about that. We're gonna move into our vignettes now. So I will pass it back to Elizabeth. All right, thank you. Okay, so as I said earlier, we were, we're gonna apply um, what we've discussed today uh, using the drug set setting framework to go through some exercises around some vignettes. Um, we'll be aiming to identify targets for harm reduction intervention uh, that don't have to do with uh, have some, having someone stop or reduce their use of the substance. Um, so I'll probably repeat that um, that rule multiple times. It is not that you wouldn't, you know, we are not suggesting that you completely take reducing use off the table when discussing options for reducing harm with a client in the future. Um, it's just that we want to uh, sort of force a more uh, creative thinking, problem-solving exercise here. So uh, here again, we have the uh, drug set setting framework. We've touched on that a couple of times. Um, I am going to, so here's some instructions for what we're gonna do with each vignette, but I'm actually gonna share a, a PDF of the narrative for the vignettes because it's easier to see that way. Um, but for each one, we're gonna go through and read a vignette. I'll read it out loud. You're gonna make some notes or some mental notes on what, what do you know from the vignette? What information do you have to note uh, what is going on with the drug, the set, and the setting? Um, you should also note what else you might need to know. Um, so what information is missing around drug set and setting? What questions might you have? 
And then next up for step three, we're going to note the harm reduction intervention uh, targets and strategies. So what sort of behavioral targets might you be looking at? What are some strategies? Um, thinking about the things we've touched on earlier around collaborative care, practical strategies for safer use. Um, and then finally, what do you imagine might be a realist, realistic treatment plan goal for the client? Um, so this is then integrating the stuff from day two. So consider stage of change, identify for um, what stage of change they might be at around their substance use, and then maybe around some of the other target areas for harm reduction intervention. Let's say one of the interventions you're considering is connecting someone to um, a primary care doctor. Um, maybe we want to consider if we have enough information to know what stage of change someone might be at around willingness, readiness to go to that doctor. Um, and finally, do not include suggestions of use reduction, cessation, uh, or referring to treatment. That's the other caveat. Uh, no, just refer to rehab. Um, Sometimes that might be something that someone wants to do uh, and that fits within their, their goals, their treatment plan, their stage of change, et cetera. But we're just gonna assume that's not on the table for each of these people who use substances. Okay. Okay, so in our first vignette, we have June, who is a 56 year old woman who has been working with a full service partnership program for two years. She is diagnosed with bipolar one and diabetes and she is prescribed Seroquel and insulin. Previously, she had been living in an encampment and due to complications from her diabetes, she was hospitalized nine months prior and had to have three of her toes amputated. Following physical rehabilitation, she moved into a board and care six, month, six months ago. June started drinking alcohol when, let's see here, when she was 13 and she has no interest in stopping. She drinks about a fifth of liquor a day, but her favorite is getting economy style boxed wine. So that's four bottles within a box and going for long walks. She says that since she moved into the board and care, she wants to drink more because she's bored and misses her friends. Also, when June is experiencing mania, she likes to go on long walks and take her boxed wine and a satchel with her, sometimes staying outside overnight for a couple nights at a time. While her foot doesn't cause her too much pain due to, due to the neuropathy related to the diabetes, she feels soreness elsewhere in her body from having to adapt her gait. She says alcohol also helps dull that pain. She uses a cane to help her balance, which she frequently loses or has stolen when outside. The FSP team has replaced it four times thus far with their funds. As for medications, June will not take her Seroquel when drinking as she worries about not being able to wake up. When staying at home, she is good about keeping her insulin refrigerated now that she has access to a fridge, but this causes her to, miss, uh, causes her to now miss doses of it when on her long walks. June says that she is walking to find her friends, but because her board and care is now so much farther away from her old encampment, she becomes that much more confused and lost, potentially due to intoxication, blood sugar issues, or brain fog, and dehydration, which only elongates her walks and increases her risk. Her FSP team has to pick her up miles from her board and care and bring her back, and they worry about not being able to find her, her getting arrested for public intoxication, the health of her feet, and keeping her housing. The board and care has told the FSP team that she needs to communicate if she'll be out overnight or she could risk her housing with this behavior eventually. Okay, I see Chelsea has put that PDF in the chat. Thank you so much. Um, let me scroll down just to remind us of what we're doing here. So we've read the vignette. Um, what do you note regarding drug set setting? So 
what do you all, well, I'll just, we'll start going through and please respond in the chat. Uh, what do you know about the drug? What information do we have about what substances June is using? Alcohol. Alcohol use, hard to determine number of drinks per day. Thank you. Yeah, so she's going out with four bottles of wine in a box, but we actually don't have the information on how quickly she's getting through it. She's finishing that. Um, a fifth of liquor a day, we do kind of know that. A fifth is, oh my gosh, please translate that into milliliters, someone. <laughs> we'll get there in a minute. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fifth of a liter. So a thousand milliliters is... Is it a 750? Okay. Math, not my strong suit. Um, okay, we've got prescription medications, insulin when taking. Uh, okay, what else do we have? Bipolar medication. All right. All right. What else do we know about the drug? So we've talked on dose to an extent. Um, potency, liquor versus wine, a little different. Okay, that one's pretty straightforward. What do we know about uh, set? So this is mindset, motivation, relationship to use or relation to use, physiology, beliefs. Um, so what's going on within June uh, very personally uh, in regards to her substance use? What's going on with set? She has a routine that she likes, okay. Yeah, she has a routine around her substance use that she likes. She does not want to change drinking, maybe wants to increase drinking, drinks when bored. Okay. She drinks because she appears to be lonely. She's missing her friends. Um, okay. Yeah. She has some reasoning around why her drinking has increased. Okay. Has it increased? Let's see. Yes. Yeah, she wants to drink more because she's bored and misses her friends. Yes, we do have it increasing. What else do we know? What about physiology? What about her history with it? And why else is she drinking? We've got friends, loneliness, bored. What other reasons? Okay, what does chronic use mean? Interactions with diabetes and numbs the pain, right? So she's got some, she can't feel the pain in her feet as much anymore. Um, but she's walking differently because she had some toes amputated. So her gait is um, causing some other pain. Okay. Seems to have some awareness on side effects with taking her meds and drinking, which can be helpful in beginning contemplation. Yeah, that's great. She wants to wake up. She just, she's worried about respiratory depression. Cool. That's good. Um, she's been drinking since she was 13 and she has learned to live with it. So we have June starting drinking very early, very, very early. Um, this has been a feature of her life for the entirety of it. It's all she knows most of her life, yeah. So her numbs physical and emotional pain, uh, drinking for a long time, chronic use, got it, thank you. Maybe depression and it numbs her pain. So she has bipolar one. So we don't know a lot about her mood cycles, but we anticipate she has depression because she has a bipolar diagnosis. diagnosis. Okay. Okay. Anything else on June and her set? Yes. Practical observation. Seems like a lot to carry that much uh, wine on a walk while also holding a cane. Yes. We imagine she's encumbered. 
Okay. What about setting? What do we know about setting of her use? Um, what's going on with setting? So environmental context, supports, culture, social dynamics. What can you observe? She's living in a board and care. She's also being supported by an FSP team. Yep. She's living further away from her old encampment and isolates her from her friends. Yes. So that care transition has a downside um, where she doesn't have her social supports. She misses her friends. She's lonely at her place away from home. Yeah. Yeah. What else do we see about setting here? Again, environment, culture, social dynamics. She seeks friends at the past location. Okay, care team, FSP is unhappy with behaviors related to her use, her being out all night, losing things, and her health, they're worried about her. They're concerned about the risks and the potential harms. Yep. Gets arrested for public intoxication often. Does she? Do we have that in there? They're worried about her getting arrested from public intoxication, but we don't have that she is just yet. Risk of losing housing, okay, yeah. Okay, what else would we want to know? So if we had some questions around June's situation and for June, what else might we want to know to like paint a, a more comprehensive picture of how to identify some targets for harm reduction? Ooh, she's mobile, but her insulin isn't. Yeah, so she's uh, needing to take insulin and it stays at home in the refrigerator but she's out sometimes for days at a time. Okay. All right. What else would we want to know? What questions would you have? She's med compliant. So she is, is she? <laughs> yeah. She's not able to take the insulin when she's out and she doesn't want to take the Seroquel when she's drinking. You'd want to know more about her setting. For example, primary care, um, PT, endocrine, and their attitudes and support. Yes. Yeah, so she's got um, uh, mobility issues, recent surgery, chronic conditions. Um, what's going on with all these other people who are helping her? How often is she supposed to take her insulin? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. What other questions might you have? Who's supplying the wine for her? That's a good question. So is she going to the store and picking it up? Uh, are there any financial concerns or questions um, around buying uh, alcohol in large volumes frequently? Are her friends drinking with her? Great question. Yeah. Is she just walking around looking for them? Does she ever find them? Um, do they do they then drink together? You know, is she getting the social support on these walks? Um, what, what, what's different about time she's drinking wine versus hard alcohol. Okay, great. Getting into what are the risks and benefits and why the why and, um, the when and where around each one. Yeah. Will she be willing to take medications for alcoholism? Okay. Will she, uh, so she's not right. She's not interested in stopping at the moment, but would she, um, you know, like naltrexone can support reduced use. Again, we're not looking at reduced use, but would she be considered, would she consider having a question about MAT? Yeah. Any mental health diagnoses? So yeah, we've got bipolar one. That's what she has. What are her hobbies and interests to explore alternative healthy activities for boredom? 
Excellent. What else might she like to do? What's she interested in? Um, what's been in her life that she might want to um, integrate into her life in a more meaningful way? Um, okay. This isn't on here, but what, we see some strengths here. Like, right? I see some strengths. I've got, you know, a coping skill of physical activity for symptoms of mania. Not a bad thing. She's active. Yeah. She wants to live. She doesn't want to be overly sedated and, uh, you know, overdose in her sleep. Um, she wants to find her friends. Great things. So these are like the, you know, the pros and cons, risks and benefits we consider when we look at, through this framework. All right, how about we talk about uh, what are some harm reduction intervention targets and strategies? So you might make a target and then say a strategy. And I, we've got a couple here already in terms of these questions that we might want to know more uh, where we might need more information. But, you know, hobbies and interests to explore alternative healthy activities for boredom also is a good example of setting the target of boredom. And then the intervention would be exploring hobbies and interests for alternative activities. So that's an example of targets and strategies. What else do we have? So as we went through and talked about drug set and setting, uh, that would be where we could pick a target. Okay, increasing her connection to friends for socialization. So target is socialization. That is going to support, it's kind of set and setting. Um, and uh, increasing connection to friends, okay? What are some ways that we could help her increase her connection to friends? Day program, yeah. Getting her a phone, yeah. Talking on the phone. Phone. phone, texting, calling, yeah. FaceTime, um, bus pass, yeah. Um, ooh, so interesting, right? AA, we are not referring to treatment. Um, and we are going to put AA in the treatment bucket um, at the moment, but that is a good idea of like mutual support, any sort of, you know, environment where um, she can receive that. So conversations around that sounds good. Right. Bus pass, getting lost at night as a target, uh, working to help her communicate with board and care and find ways to have others know her location, helping her navigate to find her way back. Okay, great. So saving that housing <laughs> and ensuring her safety while she's out at night. Okay, FSP group, at least if mutual FSP client in boarding care, FSP uh, group support, got it. Um, okay, right, so having an FSP group at the board and care. Uh, medication compliance, so where, what would the target be and what do you, medication compliance isn't specific enough to me. How are we, what, what are we actually gonna do? other than just tell her to take her meds. What are we gonna do around the medications and what is that targeting? What risk is that uh, reducing? Make sure she carries a list of phone numbers with her in case something happens during her walks and absence from the board and care. Great, yep. So some safety around uh, that risk of um, well, the multiple risks that the FSP team is worried about while she's out. Uh, physical, does she need something more supportive like a walker rather than a cane? Does she need more PT intervention to help her with her mobility overcompensation? Yeah. So can we work on the gait? Uh, is the cane the best option? Um, can PT help her um, with the pain? Reviewing safer travel options or finding landmarks to help her identify her route back home if she continues walking. Great. Motivational enhancement to help her schedule drinking in a way that allows her to take necessary medications. So 
Wonderful. Um, how can she time her drinking around her Seroquel? And how can she time her drinking slash walks to around her insulin? Medical ID bracelet. These are great. Having a having a bubby, having a buddy to walk with for support. Yeah, walking buddy. Okay, excellent. All right. What are some other? What about these medical issues? What about the dehydration? Try her water intake. Okay. Water intake goal, encouraging use of electrolytes, water bottle. Yeah. And her, what about her feet? We can do more with the feet, I think. Is she wearing supportive shoes, incorporating breaks during the walks? Great. You know, one that's never come up, but it just dawned on me. Is there a, a gym she could join? Um, uh, could she be supported to go use a treadmill, um, be in a safe space and get some of that energy out when she uh, is experiencing mania? Okay. Um, and what do you imagine might be some realistic treatment plan goals for the client? So these are going to overlap, of course, with the things you've just spoken to, but um, what else um, in terms of stage of change might be a, a factor? Um, and this could be around her alcohol use. Um, so a realistic treatment plan goal with client around the alcohol use um, and the stage of change around that, or any of the other behaviors um, that we're talking about wanting to intervene around. And there are a few of them, right? We've got medication use. We've got engagement in other types of care, social supports, um, maintaining housing, diabetic shoes and socks. Great. What other activities is she doing in PT that support her health? Yeah. Stretching. All right. How might you write a treatment plan goal? How might you frame um, some of these issues? Uh, not just separate from her mental health diagnosis and her uh, substance use disorder. Um, how might you frame some of these issues into a problem list and document symptomatology and um, interventions? Okay, we have an example here. One of the problem, problem list problems would be problems with housing. Okay, yeah. So uh, risks to housing. Okay, someone's got utilizing treatment goals as well as problem lists with my, at your site. And we might, we're going to, actually, we, I guarantee we do have people working from different types of programs, probably some that are non-DMH too. So my apologies if the language we're using for documentation isn't, you know, uh, always applicable. But, okay, it's addressing depressed mood. I can see increasing water intake, increasing days of the week, taking medications, decreasing nights, number of nights per week going. Um, MIA from the board and care. Okay. Increase access to support groups. Okay. And some of these things, I mean, I guess with the problem list frame framing, um, this might be stuff that fits within that, but not like, not one of the direct problems that you're listing as a problem within a problem list. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like and what the um, templates, uh, how that information architecture looks at this point, but okay. What about stage of change then? Maybe we can sort of orient to that as a last area to consider for June. Do we have any information that informs us on her stage of change around any of these sort of target behaviors? Pre-contemplation? Not a lot of information regarding her stage of change in general. Yes. So I guess it's a bit of a trick question. Yeah, we don't actually have a lot of information um, around what her stage of change is. There are a number of target behaviors. We don't, like, we know that she, she's trying to avoid... Um, you know, seroquel and alcohol at the same time, but we don't actually know how willing or um, 
ready or what her motivations are um, for changing uh, that behavior other than like this might might be that there might not be change that she's willing to make around the way she's approaching that right now. Yeah, don't have enough info yet. She's aware of the problem. Yeah, there's a, we imagine that it's just how do we define that problem? Uh, she might see the problem as I don't want to die in my sleep. We might see the problem as you're not taking your medication for bipolar. Um, and that's uh, that's sometimes where the disconnect can occur is that our priorities are different than uh, the client's priorities, though they have similarities. All right, let's switch to the second vignette. All right, okay. so final vignette, bring your A game. Let's do it. Final stretch. I'm gearing, I'm, I'm gearing myself up too. Late afternoon vibes. Okay. <laughs> so we've got vignette two. I'm going to read it. And then we're going to do what we just did with uh, the drug set setting tool. So Joe is a 34 year old man who has just returned to staying on Skid Row. He is diagnosed with schizophrenia and has experienced significant trauma throughout his entire life. He recently fled his transitional housing program that he has been in for six months because he was afraid loan sharks were going to find him there and because he was worried his neighbor might call the cops on him. Joe usually spends his benefit money at the beginning of the month quickly on some new clothes, maybe a good meal, but largely on alcohol, cigarettes, and methamphetamine. He is then rarely able to pay his rent and utilities, even with FSP flex funds assisting him. If you're not on FSP, those are just available funds that those programs can use to support clients for different needs. Um, so you might have a pot of money like that at your uh, organization too. The team, the FSP team worries they're enabling him by assisting in this way and have just a month ago stopped supplying the financial assistance. By the third week of the month, he borrows money from loan sharks in the neighborhood to afford more drugs and food. Joe isn't sure he wants to return to his housing anyway, as he didn't like living with neighbors who were always spying on him and complaining about him making noise and cigarette smoke all night. His roommate was trying to stop using all drugs and Joe felt guilty for bothering him. Joe wasn't sure how to cope with that feeling on top of his other fears. It led him drinking. It led to him drinking, smoking, and using methamphetamine more. Joe had avoided using drugs outside of the building because he knows the loan shark might be looking for him. Joe really wants a stable life and is disappointed to have left his housing. Joe has a love interest, Lacey, and while they get high together sometimes, he knows she doesn't want to go as deep as he is these days. Joe really values looking nice for her, for Lacey, and taking her out for a meal at the beginning of each month. She's a good influence on him, he says, reminds him to take his meds, eat, clean up, etc. When he sees himself through her eyes, he remembers he's in good physical health, and when he's not recovering from vendors, he can maintain some stability. He could even get a job down the road and dreams of that. Right now, however, She's ignoring him since he left his housing and all feels lost. So thanks for scrolling a little bit. Um, feel free to open it on your own if you need to zoom in. Sorry about the font being somewhat difficult. Hopefully that PDF helps. Um, so 
We've got Joe, mid-30s, has schizophrenia. He has a relationship with Lacey. Um, he's got some housing issues coming up. And let's think about this from the drug set setting uh, framework. So what do we know about the drug in question? What is it? What information do we have so far? Alcohol and meth. Yep. There's another one in there. Yep. Cigarettes or nicotine. What else do we know about his use of those things? I'm reading through again to see. Let's see. I also have high utilizer, and this gets him trouble. Um, so I guess, I mean, it's all relative, right? Uh, high utilizer compared to someone not using at all. There might be others who use a lot more than he does, but certainly frequent. Um, and then let's see. He's gotten into some trouble. I like your uh, observation. He uses meth at the housing facility, not outside. So he has some strategies that could also go into the environment, the setting part. You notice that there's um, some complaints from others about his uh, cigarette smoke all night. So that is impacting things a bit. Anything else you notice from the vignette about the drug? So yeah, so he borrows money to make ends meet. Um, he's, it, it appears that he's sending out his paycheck each month at the beginning. Uh, pretty common from um, the clients I've worked with. Getting paid once a month is difficult. Um, and in order to have more money to spend on survival things and alcohol and cigarettes and meth, he ends up borrowing money. So that is, uh, has to do with like his source. How, how's he getting the, the uh, money to pay for the drugs? All right, it looks like we're moving into set. So let's officially move there. Um, what do we know? about Joe's mindset, his motivation related to his substance use, how it's impacting him, what he feels about it, thinks about it. I'm gonna use your last comment. He uses drugs to cope. What's he coping with? What do we know potentially about Joe that he has something to cope with? Trauma. Right. So in that first sentence, we can see Joe has experienced significant trauma throughout his entire life. He relies on loan sharks for money. So that might impact um, the, his mindset. I could see that impacting your mindset on um, thinking about scarcity, danger. Emma, you notice some guilt. What do you think the, what do you, where do you notice the guilt, right? So he feels bad about using drugs in front of his roommate who is uh, attempting to be abstinent, right? Anything else about Joe's mindset that you all think we need to take into consideration here? 
What about his, well, oop, I just saw another comment. Yes, I was just about to ask. What about his relationship with Lacey? What, what do we know about that? How is that impacting his, um, his mindset around this? He wants a more stable life. I added the more, sorry, he wants a stable life. I'm guessing maybe that stability um, could have to do with taking his meds, eating, cleaning, having some more consistency. He sees his life more positive with her in it. So he really, uh, you know, if we we're talking about this in a different way, we might call Lacey a protective factor. He shows some future thinking. He puts more care into how he looks. Um, he likes to treat her, take her out for a meal when he has money. Ah, so you're saying since he says Lacey is a good influence on him, makes you think that he wants to stop or decrease or maybe change um, the way he might be using alcohol or methamphetamine. Anything else that might be impacting his mindset? Codependence. So, hmm. We all have different definitions for that particular word. Um, but there might be something about the relationship that is impacting his mindset. Feel free to say more. So there might be some back and forth within that relationship that you might want to take into consideration. It's unclear. It says where there is psychosis, paranoia from schizophrenia or drug use influencing how he is perceiving neighbors or how much is real. Great observation, right? We talked about this earlier with methamphetamine. Elizabeth was talking about how it can be really difficult to untangle what is, uh, what aspect of symptoms are purely from uh, mental health, um, mental illness, you know, the schizophrenia, and what is impacted by the methamphetamine. So I can understand why you might wonder about what, um, what is real and what's not. Um, oh, and Elizabeth Mackey, uh, hopes of a job. So he would love to uh, be able to have a job and uh, see himself as Lacey sees him. Excellent. Okay, so he's got some hopes and dreams. He's got some uh, experience of trauma and difficulty. He has relationships that are important to him that impact how he feels about uh, his use, like with Lacey, his roommate, um, neighbors, things like that. You see if there's anything else I noted. Um, I think just like, you know, he acknowledges that he likes to take care of his hygiene for Lacey. Maybe that is impacted by use. Final comment I see there. So great. He feels lost due to Lacey not talking to him. So he um, has received some feedback from Lacey about how, uh, how his substance use is impacting or actually, I don't know, we don't even know if it's about his substance use, but since he left his housing. 
So um, let's get into setting because I think that is going to come up next. Um, good segue in the com in the chat for that. Thank you. So what do we know about the setting? We're thinking about the environment, um, his support, culture, social dynamics, a lot of what we've already touched on a little bit, but what else is there to say about his setting? Both from kind of both sides, what's, a, what, what's helping, what's not so helpful. So shared living, so living in a space with a roommate and or close neighbors who can overhear or smell cigarette smoke might be contributing to paranoia, which might provide more understanding and context for why he left. We do know that he left because he was nervous about loan sharks were going to find him there and that a neighbor might call the cops on him. So that might be, um, we'd need to know more information to untangle what is uh, paranoia, what is uh, really happening. He has an FSP team. He does not have a stable home, cannot be in the streets for too long because of the dangers of the loan shark posed to his safety. Beautiful, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the team. So in addition to his uh, love interest, and his roommate he, that we know about so far, he also had, we know that he has a team that he is um, supported by uh, outreach workers and a multidisciplinary team. Um, ooh, great, uh, great observation. FSP team is cutting funds. Sounds like Roommate is wanting to maintain abstinence. Lacey is using substances, but potentially at a lesser dose frequency. Seems like potential housing conflicts issues. Although it's unclear what of that is external, he is, was in a traditional housing program. Excellent. I'm glad you pointed out the, the, the financial issue here, right? So he has been supported by his team financially with... Uh, paying rent and utilities because often he is spending his monthly paycheck on alcohol, cigarettes, and methamphetamine in addition to new clothes and a good meal, but then doesn't have enough left for to secure his housing. Um, and so FSP, those flex funds came in, but then the team is worried about creating a dependence situation. And so he doesn't have that anymore. And it leads to borrowing more money, which uh, he feels puts him in danger. And then, yeah, I think that's a good note too about we know that Lacey also is using substances, but not at the same amount, you know, um, he says he's deeper, I believe is the word on there into it. So I would take that to maybe mean that as well. What other questions would we have about um, what's going on with Joe's situation? What kind of questions would we have to identify more targets for um, more targets and interventions for him? 
Lacey can also be a support system to him. Mm -hmm. What other questions would you have? You've already raised a few. What is going, you know, his talk about any number of things, but his roommate, um, maybe his roommate, most pressing to me is, yeah, in that first paragraph about worrying that um, loan sharks are going to find him at his housing program and his neighbor might call the cops. We want to maybe wonder if there is, uh, if, if this is more of an internal experience uh, or external to borrow the phrasing from one of you in the chat that I really appreciated. So um, I think of that as external, like it's happening. Other people can observe it. Internal might be being fueled by paranoid ideation or other um, psychosis. What other questions would you have? Are you taking medication? Yeah, so we wanna know He's taking medication for schizophrenia. I don't believe we know that. That'd be really great to know because we would like to know how that would be interacting with these, um, with the drug use and alcohol use. What about his uh, housing? So if we try to imagine the targets and strategies as Elizabeth helpfully reminded, the target is something we've identified through this drug set and setting discussion. The strategy is what we do to um, address that target. So if we think of housing, for instance, um, we know that he recently fled his transitional housing program. What might we, there might be a strategy involved there, but there also might be some questions we would want to ask. Well, what might they be? We are, we're just talking about housing in particular. I would say we would want to know more about uh, will his housing receive him back? Is there a time frame when he is no longer eligible to return to the housing? Ooh, what supports and barriers does he have at the housing facility? Great. Thank you. All right, and let's do this last question. What do you imagine might be a realistic treatment plan goal for the client? And however that lands for you. So if you're using a problem list and not a treatment plan, what kind of goals are you thinking might uh, work well for Joe? You're suggesting increased sober support. I'm not familiar with sober support. Um, you can, or does that mean increase, maybe I'm just misinterpreting, but is that increasing support of people who identify or who identify who are sober, who, ah, there you go. Yes. Thank you. Um, hmm. And I wonder where that would, how would that be helpful? Is he, where is he at as far as um, what is his mindset regarding sobriety, reduction, any clues there? Because we want to match his motivation. Like where is, his, where is he motivationally related to his substance use? 
establish positive coping skills through activity engagement, self care skills, employment exploration. Excellent. All right. Um, we'll go ahead and wrap up with Joe here. But thanks so much for engaging in this and for avoiding the um, impulse to refer to treatment. Um, appreciate your willingness to be creative. And um, I think that's that's where we can end with Joe. Thanks, everyone. Oh, one more comment. I'm going to read Erica from where he says, when he sees himself through Lacey's eyes, he can see good physical health and maintaining stability without being on benders. So maybe he is in contemplation. Excellent. Yeah. So maybe it's not about um, maybe it's not about reduction or treatment, but perhaps he might be open to talking about timing of his use and um, maybe moderating a little bit so that he it doesn't end up being a bender. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Real quick at the end here, we are going to go through just some related resources and a few special topics. Um, mostly just sharing information on the application of harm reduction um, and practical strategies to these other non-substance use realms. Um, so you'll have some info in the slides. Um, our first one is going to be safer sex and HIV AIDS prevention. Um, I think you all are probably familiar with the first two, use of barriers and lubrication, PrEP and PEP. Um, Chelsea covered some information on that uh, prior, uh, but we have a little bit more on here. Um, I would refer you to that bolded bullet at the bottom left, uh, accessing medical providers uh, that are uh, accessing searchable medical providers by getprepla.com or calling the LA County Warm Line or at the LA LGBT Center. So um, if you're interested or if you have a client who's interested in utilizing either of those, uh, would encourage you to check out those resources for them. Okay, medication use. So an excellent um, resource for uh, working with uh, clients who want to come off of psychiatric medications but aren't sure how to uh, navigate the withdrawal symptoms or um, uh, interactions with other medications um, or their psychiatric symptoms. The Icarus Project has a like 52-page manual. It's available online. It's linked right here um, that you can use for really practical information on transitioning off of psychiatric medications. Um, and the same approach is going to be utilized, of course, like the same skills we talked about on day two, um, motivational interviewing skills, autonomy support, thinking about risks and benefits, exploring preferences and options, shared decision-making. Um, but this is a great way for people to understand what they can anticipate um, in advance of making some changes around psychiatric medications. Okay, self-injury is another area where harm reduction strategies can be applied. Um, and maybe we note this a bit more uh, because it's a, a commonly stigmatized um, behavior or coping mechanism. Um, so we want to acknowledge that for starters, and then maybe speak to separately um, what some harm reduction options are around self-injurious behavior. And so this is specifically non-suicidal self-injurious behavior. Um, it's also called self-harm, self-mutilation. 
uh, it is not the same thing as, uh, suicide, as making a suicide attempt. Um, there is some correlation between the two uh, risk of suicide if someone does self-injure, um, but it's this is behavior that's not intended to be lethal. Um, so some harm reduction strategies might be exploring the function of the self-injury and consider alternatives for coping. So increasing uh, coping mechanisms um, alongside it uh, without saying, stop doing this. Um, considering non-permanently damaging ways to achieve sensation that could include ice cubes, rubber bands on the wrist, strong or hot flavors, vigorous exercise, ripping up papers, punching pillows. Um, and then finally here at the bottom, if someone is uh, cutting their skin, uh, having clean implements, so ensuring sterilization, cleaning and dressing wounds appropriately for burns as well, uh, and learning to avoid critical veins and arteries. So this is, again, if someone is not wanting to change the behavior around self-injury, and that will be the case with some folks, um, they might not be able to, or they might not want to, it might not be a goal of theirs, they might not, they may be in pre-contemplation. Uh, here are some ways that they can do some of these behaviors more safely. If they are interested in trying out some alternative substitute behaviors, um, the, the first few that we talked through um, are potential good options there. Would refer you to the Trevor Project as a great resource uh, in this realm. And just to, to say as a caveat for the uh, substitute behaviors, there's mixed like data around how effective these are at um, not, not necessarily reducing harms, but ceasing self-injurious behavior. Um, so they are harm reduction strategies. They are not necessarily um, uh, treatment strategies. So I'll just say that. Next up, we've got um, sex work. Uh, rights not rescue is sort of the, the motto of the um, uh, social justice uh, movement for and uh, uh, workers' rights movement around sex work. Um, and the rights not rescue refers to uh, like how we can support people who engage in sex work best. Um, we need to focus on their rights, not trying to get them to stop doing what they're doing unless they want to stop doing what they're doing and find another form of um, employment. So what is sex work? It is work. It is engaged in out of choice, circumstance, and at times coercion. And coercion would be non-consensual. Um, so those are the three C's of why people might engage in sex work. Um, it is not the same thing as sex trafficking. Um, so those two can be used synonymously, unfortunately, and in a, a problematic way. Uh, sex trafficking has to do with the coercion aspect uh, or reason why someone would be engaged in sex work. They're not doing it by choice. Um, it is circumstantial, but there's also coercion. Um, so we do not want to lump people doing sex work by choice or because it is uh, circumstantially helpful into those who are being trafficked. So differentiating between those two. Some harm reduction strategies uh, that can be helpful for people engaging in sex work are bad date sheets and working in numbers. So bad date sheets are like shared lists of um, clients who have been problematic, uh, dangerous, abusive, et cetera. Um, Barrier methods and birth control for safer sex, uh, personal hygiene supplies. Um, uh, this can impact, you know, if, if people are getting not just uh, sexually transmitted infections, but just having other health issues related to um, sex work. Um, advocating for legalization. So that would sort of uh, sanction it as a, uh, a supported form of employment, you know, for benefits, uh, added safety, reduced criminalization. Um, we, we know that these are all 
barriers to someone having um, sustained well-being while engaging in sex work. Um, the Sex Workers Outreach Project uh, is a national organization, SWOPE, uh, there's an LA chapter, so they are a great option for resources around supporting folks uh, who are engaging in sex work. Um, okay, let me scroll to our last little bits here. Another area where harm reduction can be applied uh, would be for folks who are engaging in substance use and experiencing pregnancy. So there's a harm reduction toolkit around this, pregnancy and substance use, um, that's available through the National Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, it's very in-depth. And as you can see here on the right, it's getting into like quality perinatal care being your rights, um, harm reduction for across different substances. Uh, navigating the healthcare and legal systems, prenatal care, labor and childbirth, postpartum. So very in-depth, um, very complex experience for those who are going through this um, in a lot of ways. So becoming educated on that, if you have someone who's uh, pregnant and substance using, this could be a great resource. All right, finally, um, just to summarize some things, uh, we want to put all this together. <laughs> All of this, you know, historical policy context and understanding of different models of addiction and ways of talking with people and supporting them and developing goals um, and then practical strategies for helping them be safer. I'm going to do all of that uh, Why and maintaining a mindset of expecting ups and downs, growth and relapse, hope and despair, starts and stops, um, remaining accepting and compassionate for all of these things being consistent with folks and following through, uh, holding hope in a spirit of perseverance and having a self-reflective practice for yourselves and support that allows you to process the myriad of feelings that will come up in doing this work. So keeping up with people uh, where they're at, people are always moving and changing. Um, uh, so we are meeting people where they're at, but that's gonna change ongoing. So we wanna keep up and walk beside them no matter what path they take. Thank you for bearing with us. We know this is, a, a lot of information. It's a long, long training. Um, it's almost like taking a university course on the subject <laughs> in three weeks. Um, maybe not quite that much, but all the same. It's a lot. Uh, so really appreciate your participation, your attention and engagement. Um, it's great to hear uh, how, how this information was landing with you all. Um, and we're excited that you, you'll maybe be able to implement and integrate some of this into your practice.